This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Welcome to the program this evening. Thank you for being with us on this Thursday. And man, it is it is a big day. Um, by the way, before we get into all of the news of the day, we have a very special pro. Uh, we have a very special thing to present to you today. We actually do have live debate coverage that is going to be taking place on this Tuesday because that is the big presidential debates. That's right. Get excited! It's coming up. Joseph Robinette Biden versus Donald John Trump. That is going to be on Tuesday. We're going to be here uh, right now. It looks like we've got Matt Clark and uh, his wife, Laura Clark. My old co-host is going to be on. We've got law school Mike. Mike Foxhall is going to be on with us as well. My dad says that he's probably going to stop by. Uh, unfortunately, Becky Gerritsen was thinking about attending, probably won't be able to uh, because of what's going on with her brother, so we hate that she's not going to be there, but we're going to have lots of fun. We may have a couple other special guests join us as well, so be sure to check that out. That is going to be starting at 7.30 because the debate started at 8. So 7.30, a little bit late next week for starting the show, but we'll be starting at 7.30, and uh, we'll have all kinds of good stuff there. Uh, a drinking game will be involved, a non-alcoholic drinking game, of course, but a drinking game nonetheless, and a fantastic commentary there, so be sure to check that out. And also, of course, you know that the state of Alabama is elated this weekend because this is the first weekend of football. Been a long time coming. It's been far too long that we have been without football because of this coronavirus, but football is coming back. It is going to be starting on this Saturday. Both universities, Auburn and Alabama, will be kicking off their season so get excited about that. I know that I certainly am to see the return of the Tigers. I'm certainly looking forward to that. Now, since it is Thursday, we're going to do what we do every single Thursday, which is to give you the update for the latest coronavirus numbers. So we're going to go ahead and dig straight into that. Let's go ahead and look at the latest from the Alabama Department of Public Health. You can see there that we have 148,206 confirmed cases. There are 1,078,180 that have been tested, 2,506 deaths, and 16,778 hospitalizations. By the way, the fatality rate, if you're doing the math there because we do this every week, we, we let you know what the fatality rate is, it is still 1.69, which is interesting because this may be the first week that I've done this that it didn't drop. Well, I say that if you go way back, you actually see some weeks where it either didn't drop or it actually raised a little bit, but it's been a really, really long time since the fatality rate didn't drop. Now, it did technically drop, but it dropped by a, a measure that was so, so small that even if you're rounding to two decimal points, you can't tell the difference. It would still be six point, oh, sorry, 1.69, and the real figure is more than likely about one point or 0 0.169. And that's primarily just because, you know, the CDC's estimation is going to be about 10 times the amount of people having it that we originally thought. And so that's why we estimate that it's going to be roughly that. Now let's go ahead and look at the new coronavirus cases for the week. We'll go ahead and pull that up real quick. You can see here, uh, if there we go. Um, so the new coronavirus cases for this week 
Hang on. There it goes. Okay. So the new coronavirus cases for this week, you can see the seven-day average. That is the 17th to the 24th. So today, uh, that is going to be 921. And if you look at the seven-day average for the previous days, that is 885, which means that this week was actually worse than last week. That is an increase of 36. So not a massive increase, but an increase in cases nonetheless. Now, uh, let's go ahead and shift to the 28-day average. So the 28-day average, uh, the, the month that we're in now, that comes to 1,265. The previous 28-day average before the mask mandate was put into effect, remember that the mask mandate was put into effect on July the 16th. So if you're looking at the month before we had a mask mandate, the average daily was 1,156 which means that there was an increase of 109. We are still, it's fluctuated some back and forth, and there were even some times where, since we had the mask mandate, we had lower daily averages for your, your month, but that is not the case here. So if you're looking back, our monthly average, mask versus no mask, is we have more cases after the mask mandate was put into place. And uh, it really does cut against this narrative that the masks are somehow doing something productive. And, and uh, it just, it's so frustrating to watch how week after week after week, we're seeing this data. It's crystal clear that the mask mandate is not having an effect on the, the cases themselves. And that's the only thing that it's supposed to actually be affecting. Yet, despite the fact that there is no evidence that it's working, despite the fact that we are now two months afterward when this thing has an only an incubation period of roughly 10 to 14 days, that nobody seems to care that there's no evidence that it's working or helping. They just continue to do it in perpetuity, and next week is October 2nd when this mandate is supposed to run out. I'm predicting right now that despite the fact that there is no data that suggests that it's actually doing any good, Governor K. Ivey is going to extend it again for no freaking reason because that's what she's done the past couple times. Again, same thing. Complete lack of evidence that it's actually helping or doing any good. It's still unenforceable, and that's not according to me. That's according to Governor K. Ivey just a couple weeks before she put the mask mandate into place. And so... I just don't understand why it's going to get continued. I, I would predict right now that it will. I could be wrong. We'll just have to wait till next week and see. But I would frankly be very, very surprised if KIV does not extend the mass mandate, despite the fact there is no evidence that it's actually doing anybody any good. So let's go ahead and look at the hospitalizations in the Yellowhammer State. The new hospitalizations for COVID-19 for this week, we are averaging exactly 100. So that was just a, a weird mathematical oddity that it just happens that our average for the day is 100 hospitalizations per day this week. Previous week, 106. So it is down a little bit, so that's certainly good. As I've said, you could kind of debate whether or not more hospitalizations, or sorry, more cases of the virus are good or bad, because if we're getting more cases and we're not getting more hospitalizations or deaths, that's actually something that's very positive. That's actually a good thing because that drives down the fatality rate. That also means that more people now have immunity to it or at the very least partial immunity for a certain amount of time. 
And so that's actually a positive thing. Hospitalization is obviously not a good thing. If they recover and don't have any damage, which most of the patients do, you could say that I, I guess that it's a good thing that they went through it and now have immunity, but obviously we would, would, we would wish and we would hope that they would never have a case that got bad enough for them to go into the hospitalization. So that one's not really up for debate. That one's pretty much universally bad, and, and we can all agree with that regardless of where you happen to fall on, for example, the mask debate or the shutdown debate, so on and so forth. But yeah, that is a, a decrease of six. So this previous week, slightly better on hospitalizations than last week. Not a huge dip, but certainly some, at least it's a step in the right direction. At least we're, we're moving in the right direction. Now let's go ahead and look at our hospitalizations for the previous 14 days, 103 on average. If you look at the previous 14-day average, that's 95. So we actually are up on hospitalizations if you're looking at it in a two-week window, which is unfortunate, but you know it's only an increase of eight. So it's not like we're way, way out of the realm of normalcy here. And that's another thing that has been interesting. There is obviously a, a transition there is obviously a, a transition is not the right word because there is a transition, but what I'm trying to convey here is a pattern, sort of like a, uh, a cause and effect relationship is probably the best way to describe it. There's definitely a cause and effect relationship between cases and then hospitalizations and deaths, and they tend to follow one another. But what has been good is that hospitalizations and deaths are slightly more stable than the cases themselves. And so you may see spikes in cases that don't necessarily translate into more hospitalizations or more deaths. And that could be for a number of reasons. That could be because of the demographics of the people getting them. So let's say you have a week where there's just a whole bunch of young, healthy people that just happen to get it because of an activity that they're engaged in. Like when colleges started back, we actually saw that. And those didn't necessarily translate into more hospitalizations and deaths. And so that's certainly a positive thing when you, you have more cases, but you don't see that reflected in those two stats. Uh, but they are very reactionary. And it's just important to note that. Let's go ahead and look at the deaths. Speaking of deaths, the deaths in the state of Alabama are seven daily average for this week, 15. Our previous seven-day average for last week, 14.3. So we are actually on the increase when it comes to death. That is an increase of 0.7. Now, granted, that's not even an increase of a whole person per day. So it's tiny. It is an increase, but it's really nothing to be panicked about right now. Let's go ahead and look at the monthly averages, the 28-day average for the month that ended today, 18.4. The previous 28-day average, this was the daily averages of deaths before we had a mask mandate in place, 14.3. So... The idea that the mask mandate is somehow our saving grace and keeping people from dying is simply untrue. In fact, there is an increase of 4.1 compared to now when we have a mask mandate in place and have had for two months versus when we had no mask mandate in place. And so this is really concerning to me that despite the fact that we just have a complete lack of evidence really anywhere, that the mask mandate is doing anything positive that is actually driving the numbers in the correct direction, there's really nothing that shows that it is having a meaningful impact when you're looking at the numbers. And like I said, that data is coming directly from the Alabama Department of Public Health.
So I wanted to bring this up as well. There is a CNN article out that is kind of playing to this, and especially because colleges opened up and, and there are a lot of people that are concerned, and, and it's not wrong to be concerned, in ignorance. If there is something that is an unknown that is potentially dangerous, concern and maybe even a little anxiety is not necessarily unwarranted or even an unhealthy thing. What is unhealthy is when there is evidence, there is data that suggests that something is not dangerous and continuing to be anxious about it because you are living in ignorance. That is not a good thing. And unfortunately, that seems to be the position of the entire staff here at CNN. So CNN put this article up that is talking about how horrible it is that colleges reopened and how they did everything wrong and there's there's no good that came out of it and it was just too risky and they shouldn't have done so. By the way, I would like to note that this article is not a CNN opinion piece. You know, if it was Chris Cecilia or Brian Stelter, the the gayest straight man that has ever lived, and I still don't believe he's straight, but anyway, <laughs> Brian Stelter goes on, and if they were coming out and like, this is a CNN opinion piece, and it was all of this stuff, it'd still be wrong, but at the very least, it's an opinion piece. This is not an opinion piece. CNN has this listed as a normal CNN article, despite the fact that it's completely unsubstantiated in some places, and it's not flat out lying, or at least anywhere that I could find, but it's giving a whole lot of presumptions and it's giving a whole lot of conclusions that are not rooted in fact. And that's the thing that I find so disturbing about this. Now, keep in mind, I'm going to read the headline. This is not listed as a CNN opinion piece, and this is the headline. Colleges knew the risk, but they reopened anyway. Here's how they got it all wrong. Does that sound like objective journalism to you? That sounds like you're drawing a conclusion. That doesn't sound like you're presenting me with facts. That's saying, I'm drawing a conclusion, college has got everything wrong. That's not journalism. It might be an opinion piece, might be an editorial, but it is not journalism. And so CNN tries this, again, goes along with this ridiculousness, Leah Amsley is the one that put this together, and it is just absolutely dreck. There's no redeeming qualities to this article whatsoever. And here's the, we'll just read an excerpt from it. Many schools ultimately decided to welcome students back, informing their communities that new safety precautions are in place and COVID tests remain ready. But the safety measures weren't enough. There are now more than 40,000 cases of COVID-19 among students, faculty, staff, and colleges at colleges and universities nationwide, according to a CNN tally from earlier this month. Now, you can almost read the emphasis they're trying to put in there that the, the author is doing. I mean, it really is. It's almost like they're trying to say, 40,000 cases! I mean, that really is the, the tenor and tone of the article, and I'm reading into it a little bit because you have to, because it's written, it's not like a, it's not a podcast or a, or a video production. But they're making this big deal. It's like, well, clearly the safety precautions they put in weren't enough because now there's 40,000 cases. Okay, why would 40,000 cases be a cause for concern? At no point, any time in this article, anywhere, 
do they talk about hospitalizations? Do they talk about deaths? Do they talk about impacts to the students? Nowhere. All they do is say 40,000 cases and assume that that is enough to convince the reader that what the colleges did and, and the safety measures they put into place were inadequate and they didn't take this seriously enough. Look, the cases were going to happen no matter what colleges did. Frankly, I'm astounded that 40,000 is the only uh, amount of people that they got here. I'm, I'm really quite fascinated by the fact that that actually is the case. They, they never even attempt to make the case to the reader that kids getting infected is a bad thing. Because if you've got a whole bunch of kids getting infected and recovering, many of which may very well be asymptomatic, we have no idea, especially considering how common a COVID-19 case of someone being completely asymptomatic is, we have no idea how many of these 40,000 were either completely asymptomatic or, you know, got the sniffles for a couple of days, essentially. I know that you don't actually get sniffles with COVID-19. I realize it's a dry cough and all that. I'm just using that as an example. P people that, you know, didn't get very sick is the point that I'm trying to make here. So people not getting very sick and then recovering after a few days and going about their merry way, that's a really positive thing. Having a bunch of young, healthy people that now have immunity, that gets us one step closer to herd immunity. That is a very, very positive thing, but CNN never even considers that. They apparently having any cases at all, regardless of the results of those cases, is enough to convince you that colleges are very, very bad and irresponsible and don't care about the lives of their students. Uh, to further illustrate this, let's actually look at some of the data and statistics, do what CNN refused to do with these numbers. So these are, these are stats about COVID-19 at American colleges. The total, the total college students in America is roughly 20 million. The, the closest stat that I could find to this, the best stat that I could find, gave me roughly 19.9 million. But, you know, we'll round up because it was darn close. We'll say roughly 20 million students in the United States of America. Now, COVID-19 cases among college students, as CNN just told us, roughly 40,000. Okay, well, 40,000 is not very much out of a population of 20 million. In fact, that would mean that of the percentage of infected students, it's 0.2. So we're talking one-fifth of 1%. Not even a whole percentage of students are infected, and yet this is the, the big number that they want to put out there, that it's 40,000 students. It's absurd. 40,000 students out of a population of 20 million is simply not that much. So even if you were operating off of the assumption that cases themselves are bad, regardless of what the results of those cases are, even if you were operating from that worldview, this is still an incredibly infinitesimally small amount. Now, here's the thing, because I want to be fair here. The CDC estimates that roughly 10 times that amount actually do have the virus, and that's in the general population, which would mean that the number's actually 2%. It's still really small, and that also means that that other nine-tenths of the people that didn't have cases, that they all survived too because they didn't even know they had the virus. They were so unaffected by it that they didn't even know they have it, if it actually is 2%, we can go ahead and estimate that it is going to be roughly 10, 10 times more because that's what the CDC estimations say. But here's the thing. 
I'm even willing to give them more than that. Because since we're talking about a very young age demographic, that probably means that there were a lot more asymptomatic cases than even the average person. Which would mean that it's actually more than 10 times that amount. But that still doesn't make a difference because these are all healthy people that didn't have the virus, that were so unaffected by it, they didn't even know they were sick. And so CNN trying to make the case that colleges and schools should be ashamed of themselves for acting so recklessly and irresponsibly, it's just dumb. And that becomes even more clear when you look at some of these stats as well. So we'll go ahead and, and pull this up here. The total college students in America, um, 20,000. The total deaths among college students, 60. 60 deaths out of 20 million students. That, by the way, means that your odds of death if you are a college student at an American college is 0 0.0003% or 1 in 333,333. Guys, there's just nothing here. There's nothing. There's nothing here. That number is so small, it's embarrassing. Your odds of death there are practically non-existent. By the way, I saw a, uh, an AL.com cartoon that came out today that was, it was showing Donald Trump with this giant Grim Reaper, and he was talking at a speech last night. And President Trump said, it's affecting virtually nobody. And so it has Donald Trump saying that same line on a cartoon with the Grim Reaper behind him uh, with the 200,000 American deaths, because we just passed the 200,000 mark in America. 200,000 Americans have lost their lives to this virus, which is still a very small amount of a population of 326 million. But that is the, you know, th that's what was going on there. And, and so AL.com put out that cartoon, kind of ignores the fact that he was specifically talking about college students. Well, guys, if you're looking at 60 deaths out of 20 million college students, that is affecting virtually nobody. The president was 100% correct when he said that is affecting virtually nobody. When it's affecting 0.0003% of your population, that's virtually nobody by anybody's standards. There's not a person in the world that would look at that stat if you take the politics out of it, take the COVID-19 label off of it and say, would you say that that's affecting virtually nobody in that population? They go, yeah, that's, that's pretty much nobody. So uh, it's just another example of the media continuing to be dishonest, as unfortunately we've kind of come to expect at this point. AL.com, of course, is no exception to that. Now, to show you how low the risk is comparatively, remember, 60 students in college this year have died from COVID-19. The annual college deaths due to alcohol, 1,519, 25 times more than COVID. I actually found one that would show that it would be roughly 30 times more because it was right at 2,000, but I chose to use the lower stat because I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. I want to give them the absolute uh, benefit of the doubt so they're not saying that I'm just using the highest number. I'm actually using the lowest number I could find on that. And that, by the way, that figure does include alcohol-related deaths involved in car accidents, so drunk driving, that kind of thing. So if you have a college student 
or if you are a college student, you are 25 times more likely to die from alcohol than you are to die from this virus. Yet what you don't see is people going around and saying that we need to close colleges down because alcoholism is a problem. They're talking about shutting down the bars, not because they're worried about alcoholism, but because they're worried about the virus. And I'm not calling for that, obviously. I'm just saying that you're far more likely to die from some kind of alcohol-related event than you are to die from COVID-19 if you're an American college student. And you might be saying, yeah, but I don't drink, or my son or daughter that's at college doesn't drink, so that's not a risk for us. Yeah, I assume that they drive. Because if you're looking at annual college deaths in car accidents, that's 1,146, which is 19 times more deadly than COVID uh, at an American college. Annual college homicides. So this is just the chance that e either through accident or on purpose, another person kills the college student 88, which is still 1.47 times more than COVID. It's not much more, but that means your college student is more likely to be axe murdered than to die from the coronavirus. That's how insanely undangerous this thing is to people in this age demographic. It's just absurd that they're trying to convince us that we need to be terrified of this, that you should be cowering at home, the, the colleges should never have opened back up, or if they should open back up, they should have done it completely differently. CNN is fear-mongering over something that doesn't make any sense. This thing is just not a risk to people in this age demographic. There's no evidence that suggests that it is. CNN doing this whole routine, frankly, is, is just the height of stupidity. So let's go ahead and look at the, uh, th this next little passage in here, because this is also very telling of, of CNN and where their head's at. Back in July, Julia Marcus, an infectious disease epidemiologist at the Harvard Medical School, rightfully predicted that colleges were, do were going to blame students' behavior for any COVID-19 outbreaks. Yeah, that would be true of literally any human population. And any virus, for that matter. I mean, unless the school is going around with syringes loaded up with COVID-19 and injecting people with them, every single case of somebody getting the virus is going to be the fault of the people involved. Every single time. That doesn't mean they weren't being cautious. It doesn't mean that they were trying to do all the things to keep themselves safe. But that's how the world works. If you get sick, it was because of something you did. You picked up the virus at some point. Unless somebody specifically infected you somehow, that's on you. I, I don't understand this, the idea that colleges are supposed to be liable for the, the, for the behavior of people that happen to go to school there. I mean, we're not holding Walmart and Home Depot viable for the people that got infected when they were shut down, when they were practically the only place open. Nor should we. That's not their fault. People chose to go to Home Depot. People chose to go to Walmart. People chose to go to Lowe's. That's on them. It continues on. But the real problem, she said, is poor planning. Any public, quote, 
Any public health plan that requires radical changes in behavior is a perfect com uh, and perfect compliance is doomed to fail, Marcus told CNN in a re recent interview, and that's exactly what's happening. I don't even know how to respond to that. This is a specialist in epidemiology, very credentialed somebody from Harvard Medical School, saying that any public health plan that requires radical changes to behavior and perfect compliance is doomed to fail. Then why do we have a mask mandate? I mean, I believe this woman. I think she's correct. I've been saying this since the beginning of this thing. Any public health plan that requires radical change in a person's behavior? What do you think a shutdown was? If the best medical minds in the country were looking at this and saying, oh, this is going to cause basic... The only way that you're going to have this work is perfect compliance. And anything that is based on that is doomed to fail? Then why did we do all of this? CNN is presenting this as some kind of example that we should have been doing things differently. But here is the expert that they're quoting, saying that any plan that basically requires perfect compliance is doomed to fail. That's every single plan. Every single plan that has come out of this virus because of how infectious it is has basically said, yeah, the only thing, the way this is going to work is if everybody complies virtually perfectly with it. That's the problem with the mask mandate in the first place. If you're not wearing it exactly perfectly, if you're not changing your mask out every 20 minutes, if you're not reusing the mask and cleaning them properly, and you're not never touching your face while you're doing it, and all of these different things, then the mask doesn't work. And that's why the mask mandate doesn't make any sense, because it doesn't require that a person do all of those things. And if it did, it would be unenforceable. And if it did, we know that people wouldn't do it. So why have the dumb thing? This is CNN's experts, not me. It just drives me crazy that people can have this information at their fingertips and put it in an article saying that this is the reason that we need to do this. And it says the exact opposite of what they're saying that it says. Oh, man. It, I, all right, we'll, we'll move on. Many universities have prioritized requiring students to be on their best behavior, encouraging them to get tested and advising them to stay away from social gatherings. But telling students to stay six feet away from each other, wear a mask, and wash their hands simply isn't enough, Marcus said. If school administrators could put themselves back in their 18-year-old selves for just a minute, it would become clear to them what they're asking for out of a college student is unrealistic, she said. But I think there's been a lack of empathy in what's happening on campuses. Instead, some schools, instead at some schools, students are being punished for socializing. At Purdue, three dozen students were suspended for attending an off-campus party and violating the school's social distancing rules. Are they forgetting that these people are adults? Who's at colleges? Not a bunch of sixth graders. These are 18-year-olds. They're all adults. They can do what they want. The idea that the school should be policing people, and by the way, the epidemiologist seems to agree with me on this. I don't think that we're at odds with one another. I'm agreeing with the sentiment that she's expressing. Punishing them or, or trying to be, you know, the, the social distancing police as a university for students when they're doing things off campus and after school hours doesn't make any sense. And she seems to agree with that premise that that was a ridiculous plan from the very beginning. 
and that those guidelines were ridiculous. I agree with that. I think that she's actually 100% correct on that. The colleges cannot control their students, especially when you consider that these colleges are dealing with students that are adults. It may be a little different if you're talking about a boarding school for high schoolers, something like that. Okay, I get that there's a little bit of a difference there because then the school is actually responsible for the behavior of the students given and put in their charge, and they're basically acting as an ad hoc legal guardian. That is not the case here. We're dealing with major universities across the country. Um, but here's another thing that makes this so ridiculous. They're assuming that a bunch of 18-year-olds would not be hanging out with one another otherwise. It's true that when students come to a university, they might have more access to more people of their age. They might have larger social gatherings, and they are more likely to engage with people that they've never met before. That's certainly correct. But that doesn't last very long because they tend to sort of section themselves off into groups and cliques and they, they find their friend group at college and then just like they had in high school, they have a handful of people that they tend to hang out with and they may occasionally go to a party. Here's the thing, all that stuff happens in high school. All of it. And so the assumption here is that these 18-year-olds would not be hanging out if they were not at college. That's simply not true. Do you think that a bunch of 18-year-olds would just not have parties if they weren't at college? you think they would just not go out on dates and meet new people and that kind of thing if they weren't at college? They were going to be doing this stuff anyway. The whole premise of the article is based off of the idea that, oh, colleges are responsible for this because if colleges didn't exist, 18-year-olds wouldn't socialize and hang out with one another. You've got to be outside your mind. They would be hanging out with different people, probably, but they'd still be hanging out. I, the, nothing in this article makes sense. It's so frustrating, but absolutely nothing in this article makes sense. We live in a completely incurious age. And the reason that I am bothered by this is because CNN refuses to slap the opinion label on this thing, refer to it as fact, ignore all of the context, just assume that their premise is going to be accepted by their reader, and the reason they do is because they're probably right. I hate to say it, but they're probably right that the average reader is going to pick this up, look at it, read it, assume that all the conclusions that the author makes in a non-opinion piece, it's weird to even say that they're making conclusions in a piece that isn't supposed to be an editorial, that the person is going to pick this up, read all of the conclusions, never question the data, never question, okay, well, why aren't they talking about hospitalizations? Why aren't they talking about deaths? They'll never question any of those things, and CNN knows it can get away with it because it's selling confirmation buys. It's selling to an audience that already believes all of this stuff and is just looking for an article to reaffirm what they already believe. That's what burns me up so much about this, is that CNN spews out this crap all the time and they get away with it because people never question, well, why are they only giving me one stat? Why are they only giving me this side of the issue? Why does their, their premise doesn't match their conclusion? Why is that? They don't ask these things, and that's what really bothers me more than anything. They don't look for other information, other viewpoints, or what else is out there. And it, I get it. There, there's some stuff that goes on with right-wing news sources as well. I, I understand that happens sometimes there, too. But it seems to be the modus operandi for the left. It, it seems to be just their default over there. And that's why I think that it, it irks me so much. So 
That being said, we have a lot to, to go on to. First of all, there have been several attacks on Amy Comey Barrett, who is the, the potential Supreme Court nominee for President Trump, who he, he may wind up appointing her in place of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course. That happened earlier this week, or sorry, last week. Would have been about six days ago. So after we found out that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed, Newsweek had to actually print a retraction because one of their attacks went way too far and turns out that it wasn't actually based on anything, not unlike the CNN article that we just took a look at. So originally they had claimed that Amy Comey Barrett belonged to a group of what they call charismatic Catholics. It's just a, a group that gets together. They're a group that gets together and talks about Christians, uh, Christianity, the Bible, and they sort of hold one another accountable, that kind of thing. That's really all it is. It's basically a small group or a social club, something like that, but they have a larger infrastructure, and they're referred to as the people of praise. So Newsweek originally claimed in this article that they put out that was a hit piece trying to smear Amy Comey Barrett that the group was the inspiration for The Handmaid's Tale. But... It turns out that that was not the case, but originally this whole article claimed that she was a part of this group and they were the inspiration for the handsmaid tale. If you don't know what that is, you know, you, you're one of the blessed ones because it is such a, it is such a piece of garbage as far as media goes. I mean, it's basically just how the work, I, I will say this, it is useful for this. It gives you insight into the way that the left thinks that the right actually is. Like if you were to create a caricature of what a, a deeply secular leftist believes Christians are actually like and, and how, how the world would actually look if Christians were running it, you can actually go to The Handmaid's Tale, and, and they think that if Mike, Prince, uh, Mike Pence were dictator of the world, that's the way that he would have the world look. Completely untrue, of course, but it is valuable, if nothing else, for that. As far as a story, it's, it's completely useless. So, anyway... The author of The Handmaid's Tale, the book that wound up eventually being made into an Amazon Prime series, uh, they claimed that this group was the basis for that, and here were some of the claims that they put out there. First of all, they claimed that the female members are forced to report to their spiritual superiors known as, quote, handmaids, that's where the name The Handmaid's Tale comes from, and the group stresses that, quote, men have authority over their wives. <gasps> oh my goodness. Men have authority over their wives? What kind of crazy religious cult is this? Well, it's not a religious cult. That's something that's actually found in the book of Ephesians and several other places, is that part of the marriage contract is that men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which means they are willing to give of themselves, to do things for their wives, to give of themselves, even their own lives, if that's what's required, and that women, because of that, are also to be in subjection to their husbands. doesn't mean they have to do everything they do or they're not allowed to speak their mind or anything like that, but it does mean that a man has final say and he has authority over matters because he has been appointed the head of the household by God. That's part of very orthodox mainstream Christian beliefs. There are very, very few strains of Christianity that do not teach this. I, I don't, I'm honestly not aware of any, but I want to hedge my language just in case there might be some Christian groups out there that teach that that's incorrect. So uh, that, that's a very, very mainstream Christian belief. And here's the thing, not only is that rooted in scripture, of course it is, but the other thing is rooted in scripture too. Referring to yourself as a handmaid, it is a sign of humility 
and it is something that women that follow God have done for centuries. This even predates the New Testament. You can look at, for example, Mary, the mother of Jesus. She refers to herself as a handmaid when she is told by Gabriel that she is going to conceive and, and bear Jesus. She refers to herself as a handmaid in a prayer to God. Uh, you can also see Hannah, who is Samuel's mother, the, the mother of the prophet, that she refers to herself as a handmaid as well. Abigail, one of the wives of David, she refers to herself as a handmaid when she is going before David and asking him to spare her then-husband's life, which he winds up actually doing. And then you also have Elizabeth, who is the mother of John the Baptist. She's also referred to as a handmaid by Mary, actually. Mary calls her a handmaid as well. And then you have Ruth, who refers to herself as a handmaid. She, of course, being the great-grandmother of King David and, and the namesake of the Book of Ruth. And so this is something that happens, and there's probably several other examples. These were just the ones that I came up with off the top of my head. There's several, several examples in the Scripture of women referring to themselves as handmaids, merely suggesting that they are servants to God and in subjugation to Him. It is a sign of humility. By the way, men do this too. They don't refer to themselves as handmaids, obviously, but it is very common in the Scripture to see man referring to God as, Thy servant heareth. Something like that. Samuel, you know, who's the heinous son, who we just talked about. Whenever he is first called by God, he says, Yes, Lord, your servant heareth. Men typically refer to themselves as servants. Women refer to themselves as servants or handmaids. It's sort of a, just a, a synonym for that. And so this is very, very common within the Scripture, not outside the Orthodox at all. Uh, why that group uses it, I don't know. I guess it's just flowery language, just you know, something for aesthetic appeal, but it's not something that's weird or out of the norm for Christianity. But it turns out, even if that were something to be feared, and even if that were something to, to be ashamed of, that this group was the inspiration for The Handmaid's Tale, which is ridiculous on a number of levels, that it turns out that wasn't even the right group. So Newsweek got this completely wrong, and they had to issue a correction. So you can see here, this is Newsweek offering their correction. This article's headline originally stated that the people of praise inspired The Handmaid's Tale. The book's author, Margaret Atwood, has never specifically mentioned the group as being the inspiration for her work. The note read, quote, A New Yorker profile of the author from 2017 mentions a newspaper clipping as a part of her research for the book of a different charismatic Catholic group, People of Hope. Newsweek regrets the error. So they did somewhat get in the ballpark by saying that there is a charismatic Christian group that does this, but it ain't the one that Amy Comey Barrett. It's so ridiculous. They want this to be true so badly you can taste it. You can also tell from that quote that one of the things that they say, she never specifically mentioned it, sort of implying that the group could have been inspiration for it. Yeah, but it wasn't. And you guys are supposed to be a news publication. Now, granted, I, you gotta hand it to them. At least they actually did issue the correction. A lot of news organizations would have probably seen that mistake, not issued a correction, and just pretended like it never happened. Newsweek at least did have the stones to admit that they screwed up and didn't do their homework, and because of that, they attributed this to a group that it shouldn't have ever been attributed to because it simply was not the case. You would think that a journalistic organization 
would not be this sloppy. Everybody makes mistakes. I get it. But why would a journalistic organization print this to be true even though they never found actual evidence for it? Just because the names were similar? Was it just an honest mistake? I don't think so. See, here's what happened. They wanted it to be true. Because people on the left, like I said, th that's how they, The Handmaid's Tale and the dystopian future that it portrays in this fiction novel, that's how they see Christianity. Therefore, since that fits into their worldview, they wanted so bad for this story to be true, they could taste it. And so because of that, they just kind of found something that sort of tangentially connects in a very, you know, obscure way the group that Amy Comey Barrett belongs to, to The Handmaid's Tale, and they're like, oh, we got to run with this. They wanted the story to be true, which is the reason that they were in such a rush to get it out there before actually doing their research and determining whether or not what they did was true. And if you want further proof of this, if you want to know how I know that this is the case, this is the reason that they did this, all you have to do is look at the headline and how they changed it. This is after they issued the correction. How charismatic Catholic groups like Amy Comey Barrett's People of Praise inspired The Handmaid's Tale. So even though this article is based off of a premise that is completely 100% false, that is not even, there's not a kernel of truth to it whatsoever, they kept it on their website, and the only thing they changed, they changed a few things in the article itself and did issue the correction afterward, but the only thing they changed was well, it's groups like the one Amy Comey Barrett. They're still trying really hard to connect her to The Handmaid's Tale. Now, again, it wouldn't bother me even if she was a part of the group that inspired The Handmaid's Tale because it's fiction, it's not real. Which is something that these people don't seem to really comprehend. But it's not a real thing. Therefore, it wouldn't bother me if the woman, just because the women are referred to as handmaids and happen to be very devoted Catholics, it would not bother me if that was the inspiration. Because that's not a representation of what we actually are or what we actually believe. So I don't really care if that was the inspiration. If I were in that group, of course I'm not, but even if it were true... Newsweek wants this to be uh, to be the case so badly that they are willing to just, ba just you know issue the correction, but do as soft a walk back as humanly possible and say, well, you know, it it's it's like that group. It's just another example of of journalism gone completely awry. Uh, another example of this, and this one's really funny as well. This was from uh, Yahoo Life. This is Amy Comey Barrett, the potential RBG replacement who hates your uterus. I swear this is a real headline. I'm not making this up. This isn't a Babylon Bee spoof of what a leftist organization would put up there. That's what they actually said. So, And there's quite a few gems in here. But before we even get into the article, do these people not understand what a uterus does? They get that the purpose of the uterus, it's a reproductive organ, right? The, the, the whole reason that women have it is for procreation. That's, that's why it exists. And so, of course, the reason that they're saying this is because potentially, we don't know this for sure, but based on everything that we can read about her, Amy Comey Barrett seems to be very pro-life and thinks that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided. 
which, you know, is part of one of the reasons that I'd really love to have her as a Supreme Court justice. Not the only one, but definitely pretty high on the list. But anyway, that's why they're putting that claim out there that she hates your uterus because she's against abortion. Well, the purpose of the uterus is to create more people and abortion ends that. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, that that would be like, I don't, I don't know. It would, it, it's hard to even come up with something that would equate to that. It, it, it's saying that she wants your uterus to be used for the purpose for which it was intended. And it's not like Amy Comey Barrett is going out there and impregnating women, you know, and forcing them to give birth. She's just saying that they shouldn't be able to kill the baby living inside their uterus if they do happen to get pregnant. That's not the same thing. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, to put it in terms, that would be like Amy Comey Barrett saying uh, uh, she, she hates apple trees because she wants them to grow apples. That, what? That doesn't make any sense. It's fulfilling the purpose that it's there for. And she's not saying that you even have to procreate. She's just saying that, you know, that that process should not be stopped once it starts because there's a person living in there. Their rationale just is all over the place. Here's a little excerpt from this particular article. But Barrett's positions on abortion stem from her personal background and strong religious beliefs. <gasps> In 2002, she joined her Catholic University, because remember, she's a Notre Dame graduate. Uh, she joined her Catholic University's faculty. At the time, fellow uh, educators actively opposed ideas of secularization, especially in the Supreme Court's 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling. So the Catholic woman wants Notre Dame to stay Catholic? Yeah, that is scandalous. Good job, Yahoo Life. Excellent digging going on there. That the Catholic wants Notre Dame to stay a Catholic school. Ooh, they've got her now. That doesn't make any sense. I guess this is just them doing their job. They view this as front page news. This, to them, is something that is, is scandalous and uh, worthy of note. Continues on. Life begins at conception, she told Notre Dame Magazine, who also described Barrett's view on Roe v. Wade as, quote, creating through a judicial fiat, a framework of abortion on demand. For her part, Barrett is a practicing Roman Catholic and mother of seven. She is well known throughout conservative circles for putting her religious convictions at the forefront of her work and identity. Quote, her religious convictions are pro-life and she believes in those convictions, said U.S. District Judge Patrick J. Schiltz, Schiltz? who's one of her mentors. This is Pretty standard stuff for a Christian. I mean, Bible says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. This is something that, that comes very, very standard with Christianity. And the difference, I will say that one thing that is probably causing a hiccup here is if you see the world the way the left does, and if you view the courts the way that the left does, they don't see any difference in what they believe that they should interpret the law as and what they believe that the law ought to be. So if you've got two circles here and you're trying to create a Venn diagram for somebody on the left, what I want the law to say and what I think that the law does say as far as my interpretation of it, that's just a circle. Whoop, messed up my microphone there. That's just a circle. You're not, there's no distinction between those two things. Now a conservative may say, 
here's what I wish that the law said, but I'm going to interpret it this way because this is what the law actually says. See, that's what a textualist does. And so you can kind of see, even though it's ridiculous, because their stance, of course, originates from ridiculousness, but you kind of understand why leftists is a little bit freaked out about this because they look at that and are saying to themselves, well, if there was a leftist on the court that believed these things, then that's how they would interpret the law. Well, yeah, a leftist would because they have no commitment to the original meaning of the law. A person that has an originalist textualist point of view looks at the law and says, well, it doesn't really matter what I believe. This is what the law was intended to say. Ergo, this is how I'm going to rule on it. Justice Scalia famously did this in the burning of the flag case that happened back in, what was it, the late 80s, early 90s, something like that, where they brought a case before him and the rest of the justices and said, yeah, here's a case of somebody burning a flag. Can we make that illegal? And he said, no, you can't make that illegal. That's part of free speech. I don't like it. I think it's stupid. I don't think you should do it. But just because I believe that the law should be you can't burn a flag doesn't mean that the law says you can't burn a flag. Sometimes you're going to make decisions that simply you do not like or you don't even agree with yourself. And the stances that they articulate in here, those are mainstream stances of any pro-lifer. Every pro-lifer that I know of believes that life does actually begin at conception and that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided because they wanted to make abortion legal. And by the way, there's pretty strong evidence of this in the opinion of Roe v. Wade. So it's, it's not as though this is something just based on nothing or based on their own misconception. A lot of that language is written directly into the opinion on Roe v. Wade. And so this is not something that is necessarily that controversial. Then it goes on and finishes up here. Barrett's nomination could stand to change everything for the Supreme Court on November the 10th when the Supreme Court is back in session. They will once again hear arguments challenging the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. With Barrett in the seat, women's access to reproductive health could be in serious jeopardy. If Trump does nominate Barrett, a noted anti-abortionist, it would solidify fears for millions of Democrats, a 6-3 conservative majority... <laughs> A 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court that will most definitely derail years of inclusive health care initiatives. And considering Ginsburg's tenure protecting women's rights and elevating social justice initiatives, Trump would be actively opposing her legacy by appointing Barrett, putting millions of vulnerable people at wish. At risk. I wish we had a 6-3 court. I really do. I wish that we had a 6-3 court and there were six conservative justices. Just because they were appointed by Republicans, that don't make them conservative. And th what they're trying to imply here is that the second that Amy Comey Barrett takes, the, takes on the Supreme Court, that this is a 6-3 thing that they're going to get abortion, that's going to be the end of it. Here's what's so hilarious about that. You don't need six justices. You need five. So if they really believe that all six of the justices after Amy Comey Barrett is, is confirmed, if she is indeed the one that gets nominated, if they really believe that the other five justices were real conservatives, this case wouldn't make any sense because that ship has sailed. It wouldn't make a difference because 
you already have five votes on the Supreme Court. And so it just went, the whole premise, there's a, it's such a danger. Amy Comey Barrett is going to completely roll back all of the, they don't even believe it themselves because if they did, they would say, yeah, that's kind of already a moot point. There's not a whole lot we can do about it. That would be the contention here. And so it really doesn't make any sense what they're doing. Realistically, we have a 4-2-3 if Barrett is confirmed and if she is everything that she says she is. We've got Alito. We would have potentially Barrett if she is as conservative as we believe that she is. And then, of course, we would have uh, Gorsuch. And we would have Clarence Thomas. Those would be four reliably conservative votes. Now, Gorsuch does have one really weird outlier where he just completely decided to rewrite the law for no reason when it came to Title IX and Title VII. But those four are, generally speaking, based on everything that we've seen, we could expect them to be reliably conservative votes. That is not true for Roberts or Kavanaugh. In fact, the very thing that they're lamenting and talking about how it's going to be taken away immediately when it comes to Obamacare, did they forget that the swing vote was not Kennedy in the Obamacare case? It was Chief Justice Roberts? Yeah, Obamacare ain't going away anytime soon. Now, how Kavanaugh feels about it, we don't know. Because we haven't seen him rule on that yet. But we do know that Roberts is going to do everything in his power to save Obamacare, even if he has to abandon everything that he's ever believed in to do so. That's not the case with this. And so it's a very odd thing that they're talking about here. Now, you know, maybe if Kavanaugh winds up siding against Roberts, which frankly I kind of doubt, but even if he winds up on the other side, that still means that he and Roberts are both swing votes, and we have realistically a 4-2-3. We have four conservatives, two moderates, and, and three liberals on there. We still have Kagan, Breyers, and um, Sotomayor. I mean, those are they're still there. So it, they're really overplaying this and trying to drum up uh, fear in their base. But as I said yesterday, and I won't go into this whole speech again, they don't want a court. They don't want justices. They want a super legislator. They want a court that is going to green light all of their liberal policies when they come up to them. They will never rule a liberal policy unconstitutional, no matter how blatantly unconstitutional that it is. And then they also want a court that when they can't get something done through the legislature, that the court is just going to do things for them like they did in Obergefell. Because there was no way that they were going to get gay marriage. They couldn't even get gay marriage to pass in California. Even in freaking deep blue California, when they put it up to a vote twice, the people of California voted against it. So they went to the courts and then they got Obergefell. And so the only thing that a liberal actually wants from a Supreme Court is to pass things that they can't get passed otherwise or to greenlight all of the things that they actually do wind up passing and just ignore the fact that they're unconstitutional. And so they don't want a court. They want another lever of power at their disposal. That's the only thing that they care about. Now, I, I love the line at the end there that if Amy Comey Barrett is the one that replaces Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Trump would be opposing her legacy. Y yeah. What's your point? Any candidate that he would nominate would be opposing Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy. 
because President Trump, I mean, presumably is not going to be nominating somebody that would be similar to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ergo, that would be an opposition of her legacy. This is what's supposed to happen. The people elected President Trump, not entirely, but partly on the idea that he would be nominating Supreme Court justices that are not like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so this is what's supposed to happen. In the same way, I didn't like it, but when President Obama nominated the most liberal justice on the court, Sonia Sotomayor, or put forward Elena Kagan, I didn't like that. And that is not something that President George W. Bush would have done. Was Obama opposing W. Bush's legacy? Yeah, he was. That's what's supposed to happen. The American people rejected W. Bush's legacy. And they said, you know what, we'd rather have this guy that is very different from President George W. Bush. And then he appointed Supreme Court justices in a very different way than George W. Bush did. That's what it means to win an election. And the same thing happened with President Trump. This happens over and over and over again in our history. The idea that because Ruth Bader Ginsburg sat on the Supreme Court seat at one time, that from now on, in perpetuity, we must always nominate somebody that is like Ruth Bader Ginsburg is just stupid. And also, the idea that having another person that's different on the seat somehow erases that person's legacy, that's not true. Let's say that Hillary Clinton had won the election. And that just, or, or we'll even say that Merrick Garland got confirmed, that the Senate was controlled by the Democrats and Merrick Garland got confirmed instead of Justice Gorsuch. Would that mean that Scalia's life meant nothing? No. Would that mean that his legacy is now tainted? No. It's not his seat. It's just a Supreme Court seat. That doesn't lessen Justice Scalia's accomplishments just because somebody that thinks differently about the law than he does occupies the seat that he formerly occupied. It's not Scalia's seat, it's a Supreme Court seat. And the idea that this seat somehow belongs to Ruth Bader Ginsburg or is supposed to always reflect Ruth Bader Ginsburg's beliefs is just stupid. Furthermore, there is zero evidence that anybody's life would be danger in danger either way. Well, except for the unborn. Their lives may very well be in danger if somebody other than Amy Comey Barrett winds up getting in this seat. And, and by that, I mean somebody that is in the mold of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Obviously, there's plenty of solid pro-life judges that could take her spot. But it, somebody in the line of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the only people that, you, when you want to talk about people's lives that could be put in danger because of a Supreme Court seat... Yeah, well, we've had 60 million children murdered in their mother's womb because of the Supreme Court. So don't preach to me about people's lives being endangered because of a Supreme Court appointment. That's on your side, not ours. All right, so what we're going to do is, because we do have a fantastic interview coming up, I actually got some time with Professor Adam McLeod here at Faulkner University. He's a Faulkner Law professor, and we're going to go ahead and bring him on here in just a second on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. My next guest is a professor of law at Faulkner University and uh, somebody who's very well respected, done a lot of work in the area of constitutional law, and he's here today to talk to us about the new opening 
on the Supreme Court. So welcome to the program, Professor Adam McLeod. So thank you so much uh, for being with us here on the program. And uh, if you would just, because of course, the, the big news story that is on everybody's mind right now is of course, the fact that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the justice that's been there for a very long time, some would argue the most liberal justice on the court uh, is gone. So if you could just give us a quick rundown of her legacy and what she has meant to the court, what she's meant to uh, just the way that the the nation perceives law, the good and the bad? Well, her legacy, I would say, is very mixed. Um, on one hand, she uh, was an excellent, excellent lawyer mm -hmm. um, in the sense of being an excellent technician of the law. Um, the work that she did before she was on the court, um, she was a very, very competent legal strategist, um, who did a lot of work, uh, particularly on women's rights issues. Um, although, you know, one, one might say that a lot of the work she was doing um, as a lawyer was uh, pushing on open doors um, in the sense that a, a lot of the uh, rights that she was securing um, in using uh, litigation fora um, had been more or less set in place by things that had happened decades or even uh, a century earlier with the Married Women's Pr uh, Property Acts and so forth. Mm. Um, but she was an excellent, excellent lawyer and used those resources well. Um, she was also, uh, by all accounts, uh, a very personable person and very charismatic. Uh, she famously had a, a very robust friendship with the late Antonin Scalia, right. uh, her colleague on the court who uh, was very much a man of the right. Um, and their uh, jurisprudential and ideological differences uh, didn't, uh, it didn't appear to affect their friendship at all. Um, and, and that's very, very admirable. Um, in some ways, she continued her legacy as an excellent technician of the law after being placed on the court. Many cases um, of sort of straightforward statutory interpretation or uh, straightforward uh, adjudication and, um, based on uh, well-settled law, she did uh, very, very well and wrote very clearly. Um, but of course, on any point on which uh, the law departed from her own, um, we might call them leftist ideological dogmas, um, she tended to be quite lawless. Um, and this, I think, is her lasting legacy for those of us who care about the Constitution. Um, uh, from on, on any number of issues, whether it was uh, the, the constitutional and, and legal limits on the administrative state, um, whether it was social issues such as the definition of marriage or abortion or religious liberty. Mm -hmm. um, she, was, she was quite uh, consistently uh, voting uh, without regard to the meaning of the Constitution, without the regard to the original uh, meaning of, of federal and state laws. Um, and uh, and really continued throughout her career right up to the very end to push the court further and further uh, toward the left and away from the law um, of the Constitution on, on a number of issues. Mm -hmm. That's actually a really excellent point to bring out, though, that, uh, you know, from a from a technical sense, she was a, a, a lawyer that believed in the rule of law, but then on certain things, she believes that the law meant basically whatever she thought it ought to mean. And so uh, that is sort of an interesting dichotomy. I actually saw a tweet yesterday from Representative Ilhan Omar, uh, who said, and, and I guess it was mostly in reference to what's going on in the country now with uh, the riots and everything. She said, uh, I hope that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy will become a revolution. And I kind of looked at that and I was like, 
I don't know that Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have wanted that because, yes, she was very much on the left, but she also was very much a rule of law kind of person. And so could you speak to that for just a second? Yeah, she she wanted to push the law um, and she uh, really pushed the law often without regard to the law. But she she had a conceptual coherence to her jurisprudence. Mm. It was largely driven by principles of equality of result. Um, and I think she I think she genuinely believed that those principles of equality of result, as opposed to equality under the law or equality of opportunity, which would be an original understanding of expressions that you find, for example, in the Declaration of Independence, that all are created equal and endowed by a creator with certain inalienable rights, or the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, as originally understood, those expressions of American political ideals and legal doctrine um, really just mean that uh, we all must be held equal under the law, not that right. the law has to get us all to it to the same place. Um, Justice Ginsburg's view was very much that the law must get us all to the same place, that the law has an active role in bringing about equalities of result. And if we don't have equalities of result, that's a failure of the law. So in, in that sense, her, her jurisprudence was quite consistent. Um, and I think she genuinely believed it. Um, uh, and, and, and I think uh, would, would have uh, really probably recoiled, I certainly wouldn't want to speak, with, speak for her, but sure. I think would have recoiled at the idea that what she was doing was undermining um, principles of the American founding. I, th I think she really genuinely thought she was vindicating important principles. Uh, of the American political and legal experiment. I, that's consistent with everything that I've seen on her. And of course, I, being somewhat of an originalist and a constitutionalist myself, I wound up disagreeing with her quite a bit. But at the same time, whenever I was watching her and, and she would say things like talking about her own confirmation process and how uh, that was handled well from people on the right and, and how she talked about the rule of law and the importance of everybody adhering to it. Now, her view of what the law ought to be may have been different than mine, but she did certainly believe in that. So just along those same kinds of lines, though, and, and just sort of with all of that in with all of that basis to go off of, if President Trump were to replace her and nominate somebody that is an originalist, somebody that is a consistent constitutionalist and a textualist, uh, how would that change the makeup of the court as it stands today if we get a judge like that in there to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Oh, I think there's no question that it is going to be a, a, a significant net gain for the rule of law. Um, and for those of us who care about um, the rule of law and who, who care about uh, the rule of the Constitution um, and that uh, laws should be applied uh, as according to their original intent and original public meaning, um, uh, that, that, that's going to be a significant improvement. And, and we should observe that everyone on now all three of President Trump's lists mm -hmm. um, are excellent, excellent jurists on this score um, in different ways. Um, and, they, you know, they have different backgrounds and different training and different strengths. Uh, but they all have um, demonstrated a commitment to the rule of law. And I think uh, anyone on, on any of his lists um, would, be, would be a significant improvement over Justice Ginsburg's jurisprudence. And we ought to give credit where credit is due for that. Um, there are the, the, the institution, of course, that has had the, played the strongest role um, in lining up judges for judicial appointment by this White House, of course, is the Federalist Society. Right. 
um, which was founded uh, you know, some decades ago in order to bring more intellectual diversity to the legal academy and to the legal profession. Um, uh, and then, of course, institutions, uh, law schools uh, such as my own uh, uh, and, and the law school from which I graduated, the University of Notre Dame, where founding principles and original understandings of law are still taught, jurisprudence is still taught. Mm -hmm. um, of course, famously, one of the two women who've been named as being at the top of President Trump's shortlist, uh, Amy, Amy Coney Barrett, right. uh, both graduated from Notre Dame. Uh, she actually graduated from there a few, a few months before I started there and then later taught there. Um, and then Alliance Defending Freedom and their Blackstone Fellowship and other organizations that have done a really good job of rehabilitating these, these ideas. Yeah, actually, since you brought that up, I didn't plan for the interview to go in this direction. But since you brought it up, we're, we're going to talk about it. Uh, you know, you are a member of the very scary religious cult known as the Catholic Church. And I just wanted you to address that for a second, because I know that I, I've been reading things about Amy Comey Barrett and uh, her religious faith and that she believes a lot of horrible, radical things like that they should give a certain amount of their income to the church and that women should be submissive to their husbands. And I mean, reading some of these hit pieces on Judge Barrett, uh, you would think that she was, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, robe wearing paganist cult uh, that she's she belongs to. So could you speak to a little bit of that and, and maybe a little bit of uh, Justice Barrett herself? Yeah, well, I should uh, start by clarifying uh, a misconception, perhaps. Uh, I'm, I am Catholic in the small c sense, but I'm not Roman Catholic. Um, I'm actually a member of the Anglican Communion. Um, but I did study at Notre Dame Law School. I have a number of very good friends um, mm. in the academy who are Roman Catholic. Um, and my work is primarily in uh, taking the insights of what's known as the natural law tradition of thinking about the idea that there are objective critical standards of morality that we can all know through the exercise of reason. That's a tradition that is not particularly Catholic. Many Anglicans have been great expositors of it, such Richard Hooker and C.S. Lewis, mm -hmm. um, and many evangelicals as well. Um, right. But uh, but of course, it was, it's been cultivated by the Roman Catholic Church. Barrett is very much formed in that same tradition. Um, we had all the same professors at Notre Dame. Um, we just barely right. missed each other. We've been mentored by many of the same people. Um, and there's nothing mystical about it. If you want to figure out what these folks believe, you can go read their, uh, their public essays and their law review articles and, and, uh, and, and see for yourself. And what you'll find actually is what they are saying is basically the same thing as uh, that which folks like Martin Luther King Jr. have said and right. Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and, of course, the framers of uh, of the American founding, the right, the, the three authors of the Declaration of Independence, the Northwest Territories Act. This is very much in the center of the American legal and constitutional tradition. The idea that there are objective right and wrongs, um, not many of them on most questions, reasonable minds can disagree, but there are certain objective rights and wrongs. And there are certain guiding principles, which when settled and specified as laws and particularly as constitutional laws, um, we must, consistent with reason, preserve them. The right to a jury trial, mm -hmm. the right to bear arms, um, the, the particular due process guarantees that we've inherited uh, in our common law tradition, the right to confront witnesses, the right to have notice of charges against us and all these sorts of things. Um, and we throw these legal securities for our rights overboard at our peril. Mm -hmm. um, now, there are other complications. Now that the court has, in fact, spent the last 50 years or so going wrong on important constitutional legal questions, 
what do you do with those precedents? Uh, there's a doctrine called stare decisis, which says, right. usually what you do is you follow the, the precedents uh, of the court. And Justice Barrett, Judge Barrett, I'm sorry. <laughs> Potentially <laughs> Justice Barrett. Yeah, yeah. Um, Judge Barrett um, has thought a lot about this question, um, this tension between an original understanding of the Constitution and adherence to the rule of law on one hand, um, and the doctrine of stare decisis, which might motivate the court to uh, maintain flawed precedents mm -hmm. um, on the other. She's written quite a lot about it in her scholarship. She has written really with, uh, with deep, deep reflection and, and very nuanced critical reflections on these, on the, the ha really hard questions at the, at the juncture of this tension. Um, and, uh, and really uh, has, a, has demonstrated that she has a very, very well-formed juridical mind. Um, and I think is, uh, is an excellent judge. So sort of on that, because I, I think when going back to the issue of their faith, uh, first of all, I think that that's sort of a, uh, a testament to how far we've moved on the Overton window, that there's such a secularization in this country that a lot of people, journalists and, and those types, can look at the beliefs of, of that and saying things that submitting to your husband or tithing are radical and outside the religious mainstream, when, of course, uh, Catholics, Protestants, I mean, basically every flavor of Christianity, as it were, believes a lot of those basic things. Uh, but also, and I think that this is equally important, uh, I think that there is a misconception that because you are a Christian and because you have deeply held religious beliefs, that you are incapable of making a distinction between what your religion dictates you do personally and what the law mandates you do. Because I think, and I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this, it seems like to a lot to the left, kind of what you were talking about with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, if she personally believes it, that's the way the law ought to read. And that's very different than somebody that is an originalist or a constitutionalist who can look at their own religion and say, okay, my religion teaches this is wrong, but the law says this, therefore that's going to be my opinion. And so could you speak to that for just a second? Yeah, that's, that's very well said, and you're absolutely right. It, unfortunately, there's a bit of an asymmetry that we're witnessing right now. And that is um, those of us who believe in an original understanding of the Constitution and the rule of law, we can perfectly well understand the perspective of our friends on the left. We know why they're freaking out. We know why they're upset. We know why they're worried. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is that they're concerned that the precedents which the court has handed down, um, creating these, uh, these new doctrines and, and abrogating uh, uh, fundamental rights like the, the right of the unborn to life and right. legal securities for the health of the mother and the rights of children to be connected to their natural parents. Um, they're concerned that all of those are going to be rolled back. And you're absolutely right that from their perspective, the law or what justice requires is identical to what I believe. Right. Um, and the asymmetry is they can't perceive that we don't view the law that way. We really do believe in things like um, the rule of law, that the law should be applied to a case, even when the result is one that I don't like. That, that's, I think that's actually the test of a good judge. Yeah, does a judge yeah. occasionally uh, compelled by the law to reach uh, decisions that uh, uh, the results in their decisions that they don't like because that's what the law requires of them? Um, and, and stare decisis. We really do take stare decisis seriously because we really uh, uh, value the, uh, the, the role and power court not judicial supremacy by the way that's a different 
Right. It's a different predicate that the left believes in that many of us, well, unfortunately, many people on the right also uh, accept it, <laughs> but many of us on the, on the right who care about the rule of law um, uh, see clearly that that's not a, a correct understanding of the Constitution. Uh, but they don't see any of that. And so what they see is a zero-sum contest over power. Mm. Um, and, and that is, uh, you know, for, for obvious reasons, fairly disconcerting to our friends on the left. Um, uh, and, um, and that's, you know, that's, of course, not what Judge Barrett is about. That's not what uh, Judge Lagoa, who's another uh, uh, p potential candidate for this seat, um, is all about. These, these, these ladies and the other folks on the list are genuinely committed to the rule of law, and they have no desire to impose their own um, particular religious tradition or uh, religious um, practices or um, peculiarly religious beliefs on the rest of America. One thing that I wanted to ask about that you touched on briefly just now, you were talking, of course, about the issue of life and, and sort of the repercussions of having a justice that disagrees with the views of the left on this. And I have seen so much panic on the left about Roe v. Wade being overturned, which, let me be clear, I would love to see. I'm, I'm very much a, of the opinion that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided and that the unborn should be legally protected. However, personally, just based on my perception of it, even if we got somebody that is staunchly pro-life and 100% willing to overturn Roe, I don't see that happening with this court. Uh, because of some of the things that we've seen from Justice Kavanaugh, because of what we've seen from Chief Justice Roberts, I, I just personally do not think that even if we got a pro-life judge on there, that that would make a difference. Uh, am I wrong on that? Am I somewhere in the ballpark of being correct? And, you know, where would you see that vote going if it were taken today? I know that's hard to ask you to predict, but just uh, what would you what would you predict would be the, the case? Yeah, well, I wouldn't want to speculate on what this court might do in the abstract. I will say that if given a really good test case, um, the court might very well begin not to overrule Roe right away, but begin to overrule some of the later abortion precedents, um, which continue to extend Roe and expand the rights of abortionists and expand the powers and immunities of abortionists in a way um, that, in, that in some senses uh, really undermine the original rationale of Roe. Mm -hmm. Roe is supposed to be a protection for women's choice and women's autonomy. Um, and what the Roe, Casey, uh, Singleton versus Wolf, Hellestadt versus Whole Women's Health line of precedence uh, has revealed is that it's actually not about that. Certainly not about that anymore, if it ever was about that. It's all about the power of abortionists. Um, and and uh, I think we're, we're the court confronted with the tension between the powers and special privileges that have been conferred upon abortionists and the life and the health of the mother and her child, um, I think uh, we could expect to see those precedents begin to be rolled back um, incrementally, not overnight. The, the, the pro-life cause has gotten better over the years in, in um, crafting legislation and in uh, crafting test cases that um, are sympathetic and, uh, and really difficult for the court to ignore. Um, it's, it's hard to say whether they're there yet in terms of presenting to the court, uh, a really, a really slam dunk challenge. Uh, one thing that's sort of low hanging fruit, um, uh, is, uh, which I've been saying for some time is the pro-life cause ought to be challenging the standing of abortionists. That's the power to bring a suit 
in court. Notice um, every time there's one of these challenges to a state law, it's not a pregnant woman who's bringing the claim. It's an abortionist, a mm -hmm. big corporation or an abortionist, usually a man who has a lot of money at stake. And somehow they're allowed to speak on behalf of their putative patients to strike down laws which are put there to protect the health of the mother. Right. To protect these very same women on, for whom they, we don't allow abusive husbands to speak on behalf of their, their victims in court. We don't allow, you know, we have confidentiality protections for, for clergy and lawyers. We don't allow um, abusive clergies or lawyers to speak on behalf of their victims in court, but we allow the abortion industry. So that's, that's low hanging fruit. And there are other examples I could give, um, but it's up to the uh, pro-life advocates to craft those cases in such a way, go on offense, start prosecuting, bring out the fact that these Douglas Carpins um, and Kermit Gosnells and, mm. and uh, the Klopfers of the world um, are, are not actually aberrations, but that's, that's, the, that's the inherent logic of the whole Roe Hellerstedt line of precedent is you, 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 have, uh, you have basically caused these abortionists to lose their respect for life and health of the human being standing in front of them. Um, tell that story in a better way. Yeah, I, I think that if nothing else, we've gotten significantly better on the optics of that from the public perspective, too. From the legal perspective, that's kind of the, the edge that you were, or sorry, the, the side of it that you were showing. Um, but before we do go, because I know that our, our time is starting to run short, if you were advising the president right now on who he should pick, and you don't have to give specific names, but just uh, what type of judge would you be looking for? What are some of the... Uh, uh, what are some of the signs of a judge that you would want to sit on this seat in the Supreme Court? Well, I would want um, two virtues that are very closely related uh, to be demonstrated by this judge. Uh, I would want this judge to have demonstrated intellectual courage and moral courage. Um, so I want to see uh, a judge who has already shown that they can resist the significant cultural and social pressure which exists inside the echo chamber, inside the Beltway in DC, um, and is not going to be seduced by um, the opportunities for accolades and approbation uh, of the cultural elite, um, and is going to do the right thing and make the right decision. So I wanna see moral courage in this judge. Um, and I wanna see intellectual courage. I wanna see someone who's thought deeply and carefully about um, the important legal questions uh, and jurisprudential questions that this next justice is going to have to confront during his or her time on the court. Um, I would like to see some evidence that this judge has given careful reflection to the question, what is law in fact? Mm -hmm. um, why is it that precedents matter? Is it that those are the laws or is it they are evidence of the law? And if they're not good evidence of the law, what do we do with bad precedents? Um, you know, how do we interpret uh, text. Is it just the text, uh, as some of our friends think? Is it, um, well, judges should be should be pushing the boundaries and making the, the text mean whatever they want? Or is there really a set of propositions which we can say constitutes the intents and purposes of the crafters of law, which we, which we should respect because it reflects careful deliberation, sometimes centuries of careful deliberation, about what sorts of rules uh, make society flourish and um, and go well. Um, I want to see careful, careful reflection, evidence of careful reflection on those sorts of questions uh, so that I know whoever's going into this seat um, is not going to be trying to make it up on the fly. 
um, but is going to be acting out of their own uh, well-formed conscience and, and, and very carefully um, uh, uh, thought through convictions about the relationship between law and judgment. Now, I don't know if you've had time to look over all of the people on Trump court list, but would you say that the, the people that you know of so far would meet that? Because I think he's been talking about, what, four, four women that he's uh, brought forward and, and discussed as possibly being his nominee? Yeah, and uh, the two that, of course, have emerged as sort of the top contenders, um, again, are Judge Barrett on the Seventh Circuit and Judge Lagoa um, on the 11th. I have mm -hmm. um, some familiarity, not with, uh, not personally with um, the other judges, uh, uh, the other female judges uh, on his shortlist, uh, although I know um, some of the judges on, on the shortlist. Um, uh, but they all have demonstrated a real commitment to the rule of law in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, many of them uh, have gone through various educational programs like the Blackstone Fellowship at ADF, uh, where these sorts of big picture questions are asked. Others like Judge Lagoa have really paid their dues as a judge, in her case, uh, in the Florida State Judiciary, sort of working her way up through um, and has shown that she's a very, very competent technician of the law um, and is really committed to applying the law to the cases in front of her. Um, uh, and so there's, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches for those of us who care about the rule of law. The, the bench, uh, so to speak, is very, very deep. Um, and I have every confidence that uh, if this president does get to appoint um, Justice Ginsburg's successor, uh, we're going to be a lot better off as a result. Well, I, I got to tell you, your evaluation there makes me feel better because I know that from people that are of a conservative bend, the fear is always that you're going to get a Justice Roberts uh, or, you know, a, even a Justice Kennedy, um, somebody that because I, I believe that the strategy from Republicans has been uh, well intended, but not well executed, that we kind of try to go with these stealth, if you will, uh, sort of candidates and, and try to <laughs> make it to where um, when, when they put them in, they basically don't have a record, and, and that's dangerous. And, and what you're talking about is somebody that has already shown that sort of moral courage to uh, stand against the, the tide or the whims of, you know, whatever is popular politically at the time. And, uh, you know, that, that would be the thing that I'm looking for, and that would, that would be the thing I'm looking for, too, and, and hope that they would be able to do that. So uh, really do appreciate that evaluation. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to leave us with before we uh, wrap it up here? Yeah, regardless what happens in the next few weeks, regardless of the outcome of the election, um, the, the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary on the whole uh, are really much, much stronger than they were four years ago. Um, and I, I think for that, we can be grateful. And I think we can be grateful for the life and example of, uh, of Justice, the late Justice Ginsburg in many respects. Mm -hmm. She demonstrated what uh, charity looks like and friendship looks like. Um, and overall, uh, what's what, what, what uh, people are capable of when they set their mind in a single-minded uh, uh, single way uh, toward achieving excellence in their craft. All right. Well, thank you so much, Professor Adam McLeod, a professor of law here at Faulkner, one of our very own. Thank you so much for being on the program, and uh, hopefully we'll get to hear from you soon. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a good one. All right. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate you being here on Tactics and appreciate Professor Adam McLeod being generous with his time and being with us. I did have to cover this story because it's such a 
microcosm of basically everything that is wrong in our country. And I know that that is, I, I promise I'm not trying to overblow this. This is really how I see this. This was President Trump who goes out to visit Ruth Bader, Ginsburg, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's casket before her funeral. She had her casket set there at the Supreme Court building so people could come by and visit it from a distance. President Trump goes to the Supreme Court building and goes there to pay his respects, and he is greeted with the crowd booing him and yelling, vote him out. You can see that in this clip here. so horribly disgraceful. And of course, that's irreverent and impolite and all of the other aspects, the other attributes you could attribute to it. But more importantly, I think it puts something on display. If you want to know why we can't be unified as a country, that's it right there. Because when even gestures of goodwill are met with malice and disdain, when you try to offer somebody an olive branch, even though you know you're in a disagreement, and the first thing that they do is slap your hand away and want nothing to do with you, even when you're trying to reach out and trying to show some measure of goodwill, unity is not possible. If you were involved in a marriage, for example, and your spouse wants to get a divorce, and every t single time you try to rectify whatever problem is surfacing in your marriage, and they constantly slap your hand away, and they actually get angry at you and boo and hiss at you every time you try to do something to extend goodwill towards them, that's not a, su that's not a sustainable union that you can hang on to for very long. You may be able to hang on to it for a while, just like we're able to technically be united as a country in the legal sense for right now. We cannot stay that way. If one side, every time they try to extend some measure of goodwill and, and send out a message of trying to unify on common principles and commonalities between us, if every time you do that, you're met with animosity, you can't sustain that for very long. And what ticks me off about this probably more than anything is that it degrades Ruth Bader Ginsburg's entire life to merely a political tool for the left. Because it is very evident and clear that the people that are there to pay their respects to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that the second... that. President Trump comes out, it becomes a political rally that they're no longer there to pay their respects to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They are there to show some kind of political solidarity. That's what that proved about those people. They don't care about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They don't care about her death. They don't care about her family. Because if all of a sudden you going there to pay your respects in a very reverent way turns into you shouting your political opinion and letting that be known to everybody around you, then you weren't there for the right reasons in the first place. And looking at it through that prism, 
To those people, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not important because she was a human being. She was not important because of her accomplishments. She was not important because of her time and tenure on the Supreme Court. She was important because she was giving them what they politically wanted her to give them. That's it. That's all they care about if the second that somebody comes out trying to honor her and pay their respects to them that they happen to politically disagree with, that that becomes more important than being there to show your respect to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, then you don't respect Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I have more respect for Ruth Bader Ginsburg than these people. And I say that as somebody that thinks that she was a terrible justice. But all of that being said, this is why you can't have that level of unity with people because they don't even care about the people that they claim to care about. To them, the only use that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has was giving them liberal policies that they wanted or greenlighting them or, or giving them uh, through basically judicial fiat the things that they wanted because they wouldn't react that way in any other circumstance. And furthermore, it does kind of illustrate why one of the axioms on this show is disagreement isn't hate. That's hatred. That is something that you can't even put your own disagreement aside for two seconds because you hate the person so much that you want to let them know that they hate you and that becomes the sole focus of your mind. That's one of the reasons that I say on the show and I begin every show with three things, and one of them is disagreement isn't hate. And I put it last, and I give it extra emphasis, because right now as a country, we're struggling with that really hard. We're struggling with the other two as well. Speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, but we really struggle with disagreement isn't hate. And there's people on the right that are the same way. I get it. I'm not saying that that's exclusively something on the left, but the thing is, the right may have some crackpots that do that, but it's not, at the, it's not at this level. It's just not. And I will call it out whenever it shows up, and do, often. But it's just not happening as frequently on the right. I remember President Obama at Scalia's funeral. I remember him going to pay his respects. You cannot find video of a bunch of conservatives shouting and yelling and saying, vote him out to President Obama. The people that like Scalia probably aren't people that like Obama very much. You got a guy that was dedicated to the Constitution, being respected by a guy that believed that it was just a charter of negative liberties and ought to be done away with. But there was at least enough humanity in the people that loved Justice Antonin Scalia to say, you know what, it's a good thing that the president, even if he wildly disagreed with him, thought enough of Justice Scalia to come and pay his respects. That's a positive thing. That's a good thing for our republic, and it's a good thing for us as people. The left just doesn't seem to believe that. And it really is upsetting that that is the case. You remember when the media freaked out at the Trump rallies because Trump kept saying, uh, because Trump wasn't, actually it wasn't because Trump said it, it was because Trump didn't stop his crowd from yelling, lock her up, and they talked about how distasteful that was and how that showed that this crowd was, was angry and violent and all of these other things. But they don't say anything about this. 
They don't say a word about a group of liberals yelling and shouting, vote him out at a wake, at a, not a funeral service, but a, uh, you know, a, a time to be there at Ruth Bader Ginsburg's casket and pay your respects to people. And when the people were doing it at a Trump rally, they were at a political rally. That would be the place to do stuff like that. I, I didn't like it. I don't condone it. I thought, even if I thought that Hillary Clinton did deserve to be locked up, and by the way, I do, based on the evidence that I've seen, it's a bad look and it's not something that is good for your side by doing that and doing the chance of lock her up. That, that makes you seem like an angry mob that just wants to get rid of her because she's your political opponent. But this is the same thing going on. It's something that's supposed to be a very somber, emotional event. And they just, they can't get past their own hatred of the man long enough to just keep their mouths shut and, and pay their respects and think, well, we're here for something bigger than my political squabbles with the big orange man at the top of the stairs here. At least when the people at the Trump rally did it, even though I didn't condone it then either, it was not at a time where Hillary Clinton was trying to extend an olive branch and say something nice and say something good about a conservative and a person that believed the things that they believed in. Uh, the media double standard here is just horrible, and, and it does show why we're so broken as a country, to be perfectly frank. These people do not care about Justice Ginsburg. They do not care about her family or their feelings. Because i got to tell you, if I, if I were one of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's kids or grandkids, or nieces or nephews, and I'm seeing this, I'm, I'm heartbroken over that. Seeing that people turned this into basically a, a, a political shouting match at my mom or, or, or at my mom or my sister or, you know, whatever. I don't know exactly what her extended family looks like now, but um, I'd be horrified by the prospect that that is going on at my loved one's service there. I don't know. It's I'm frankly a little bit speechless. It's just really sad to see that we've reached this point in our society. Let's go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. I need something to make me chuckle here. No, you messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. Okay, for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, I am trying something that is pretty darn ambitious. It's a sextuple dose of the Daily Dose of Stupid, which sounds a lot dirtier and, you know, much more enjoyable than it actually is going to be, but uh, it means six. So I have six stories here, and I'm going to rapid fire through a whole bunch of them. I'm going to get as many of them done as I, I possibly can, because guys, this was a stupid, stupid week. There was a lot of stupid going around. I don't know if we had an outbreak of stupid and people weren't social distancing enough to keep from catching the stupid. But man, there was a lot of stupid this week, and so I just had to go over a bunch of these stories. I'm going to hit them as, as fast and hard as I can. The first one is Uncle Ben's Rice. So in the wake of all this, Uncle Ben's announced that they were going to reevaluate what their name was and, and what their branding was going to be. Well, they finally came up with something to change Uncle Ben's Rice, and you can see this graphic here in their official announcement. We listened. We learned. We're changing. Moving forward, Uncle Ben's will be known as Ben's Original. So apparently the word uncle was the problem with Uncle Ben's rice? Is, is it not okay for black people to be uncles now? I thought it was so dumb because you look at the guy on the Uncle Ben's rice, 
Like, wouldn't you want to eat rice at that guy's house? Doesn't that just look like an, an old-timey dude that would would make, you know, rice or jambalaya or something else containing rice, maybe some uh, a rice with some chopped steak and gravy over it, and that would be pretty darn good? Uh, that's why the branding worked. It's because people liked that. Apparently now, it's racist to have black people, especially ones with the uncle moniker on there, uh, it's it's racist to have that on food, and now only white people can be food mascots. Well, good job, guys. We finally figured out what white privilege actually is. Apparently, white privilege is the ability to either be an uncle or to be a food mascot on a food product. Only white people can do that. Now, we've solved racism. Racism is over. Uh, the white privilege is the privilege to be the mascot of, of food. And so I guess we've solved all of that now. And uh, apparently it's also racist to be an uncle. So if you are an uncle, regardless of your color, you are racist. Remember that. Let's go ahead and move on to the next one. There was a peeping Tom that was attacked in a South Carolina Cracker Barrel. So this is a weird one, but stay with me here. Apparently what was going on is in the girl's bathroom, he was hiding out in one of the stalls. There was a 15-year-old girl that went to go in the bathroom and do her business. Now, frankly, obviously it's disgusting that a grown man is wanting to peek in and look at a 15-year-old girl regardless of the circumstances. But I've also found it really gross that some of these voyeurs will do so specifically when women are going to the bathroom. Like, to me, that's a huge turnoff. It wouldn't matter if it was the most attractive woman in the world. If you had, uh, I don't know, Gil Gadot, and you're like, hey, you want to watch Gil Gadot go into the bathroom? I'm like, no, that's gross. I don't want to see that at all. It doesn't matter how hot she is. If she's going to the bathroom, I don't want to see it. So that's one thing that's really weird. You've already got some stupid interlaced in all of this. But anyway, this pervert, you could understand why he doesn't care about that, considering how perverted he is. So this pervert does this, and he slips his head underneath the stall and tries to get a look at this 15-year-old girl. So the 15-year-old girl, understandably, is, is very freaked out, and she goes outside the bathroom and tells her dad that there was a man in there trying to take a look at her. So dad goes and gets a female employee of the Cracker Barrel. Remember, this is in South Carolina. That's going to be important later. And he brings the female employer, uh, employee there. She goes into the bathroom, flushes the guy out, basically, and then he comes out. And then the dad, uh, he tries to leave. The dad tries to hold him there. The guy tries to get away. And so the dad basically yells out what is going on to the crowd there in Cracker Barrel, and a whole bunch of other dads and the man's son apparently all join up and start chasing this guy. They create a posse. So this is just like an old-timey Western. They get a, a posse together to, to chase down this peeping Tom, and they finally do get him. Uh, one of the guys punches him in the face to, to get him to stop running, and... <laughs> Uh, they hold the, the, the mob of dads. So good dads out here, by the way. Awesome. You, you've de definitely earned yourself some dad points for this whole event that's going on here. So the dads basically wait out uh, the police showing up and then they wind up arresting the guy. It turns out this guy was was quite a piece of work. He's a 53-year-old registered sex offender named Douglas Lane of Charlotte, North Carolina. So I'm not sure what he was doing in South Carolina. I guess just passing through. Uh, but he has been busted for peeping eight times. So this is a pretty sick individual. He's a registered sex offender, like I said, which means he's probably done this before to underage girls. And uh, I got to be quite frank to you. It's a miracle this dude isn't dead. And I'm not just saying that because I think that 
he deserves death or what he did is has earned the death penalty, especially since he's done it eight times. I'm just shocked that when you're talking about somewhere in the South, that nobody had a gun and just killed the guy. That really is a miracle, because if he's fleeing the scene of the crime and all of that, I really don't see how somebody didn't pull out a gun, especially considering he was trying to take a look at a 15-year-old girl while she's going to the bathroom and just kill the guy. Furthermore, he's in a Cracker Barrel. I mean, if there's a place where about half of the people that are eating there probably have a gun on them, it's a Cracker Barrel. Furthermore, even if you just happen to find the one weird Cracker Barrel in South Carolina where nobody happens to be armed at the time, it's a Cracker Barrel. You have no shortage of rusty old farm tools just hanging around. How does this guy wind up doing this without getting a pitchfork through the face? Like, that's what I'm surprised about. So, if you really want to pinpoint the stupid in this Daily Dose of Stupid, it's, if you're going to do this, as horrible as it is, and I'm not trying to give tips to perverts here, but seriously, if you were going to peek in on women and, and try to get a look to get your jollies or whatever, you know, sick people like this want to do, you don't do it in a Cracker Barrel in South Carolina. It's a miracle this dude is still alive today. Anyway. Another story that came up this week with a, a hefty dose of stupid, Andrew Cuomo. So Andrew Cuomo puts out this tweet about wearing masks. So this is Governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. Not wearing a mask is just dumb. Let's just say that not wearing a mask is dumb. Let, let's ignore all the science and the data that says that, you know, it, at best it's mixed as to whether or not they are effective. Pretend that's not a thing for a second. Andrew freaking Cuomo tweeting out, well, not wearing a mask is dumb. Not as dumb as sending COVID-positive patients into buildings filled with old people. <sighs> Look, if you're Andrew Cuomo, I would just not tweet about coronavirus stuff from here on out. You've lost all moral authority there's no reason people should believe in you or, or, or take anything that you say seriously. And the obvious comeback to virtually anything you say about what people should and shouldn't do when it comes to this virus can be easily countered with, well, maybe you shouldn't have put a bunch of COVID positive patients into homes with old people and made them legally required to do so. Maybe you shouldn't have done that. Andrew Cuomo has overseen a death toll that is larger than most countries in a single state because of that policy. So, no, Andrew Cuomo, I don't have any interest in taking advice for how to handle this pandemic from you. The next story, Alyssa Milano apparently called the police to come rescue her this weekend, which isn't really a big deal until you remember that Alyssa Milano, a couple months ago, was calling for the defunding of police. So there is a pretty thick irony going on in there that the very person that was like, we need to defund the police and no more police anymore, had to call the police when she felt unsafe because apparently there was a 40-year-old man roaming around there with an assault rifle, except when they investigated it, turns out it wasn't a 40-year-old man, it was a teenager, and it wasn't an assault rifle it was a BB gun, and he was just killing squirrels. <laughs> so, 
Apparently this was happening near Alyssa Milano's house. There's some dispute and they weren't able to prove whether or not it was actually Alyssa Milano's husband or the uh, neighbor that called about this. But either way, Alyssa Milano claims that the 911 was originally contacted by the neighbor. The neighbor told them and then they called 911 to follow up. Which doesn't matter because either way, they were calling the police in order to have this problem resolved. Like, who called first is really completely irrelevant. This is what she used as her defense when she saw that the Daily Wire and other right-wing news publications started coming out and, and pointing out her obvious hypocrisy here. But anyway, that's what she originally claimed, but it really doesn't make any difference because either way, she was relying upon the police, whom she said ought to be defunded in order to protect her and her family. She also tried to make a big deal in her response to this tweet saying, well, I have young children. Yeah, Alyssa Milano, nobody begrudges you for wanting your family and your kids to be safe. We all want that too, which is why we want police officers. And you just demonstrated that despite the fact that you've been calling for them to be defunded. This is the statement that she released after this thing started making the media rounds. You can see here Alyssa Milano saying, these are exactly the types of situations that police officers are trained for and should be responding to. And we will always support police having resources they need for appropriate policing actions. We'd love to see equally trained non-police professionals respond to addiction and mental health crises and non-violent events so that these brave officers can do their jobs they are so good at handling as they demonstrated this weekend. Now, on its surface... I have no problem with anything Alyssa Milano is saying right there. Nothing in there that makes me think that Alyssa Milano is doing something that she shouldn't do. I agree with the sentiment that she is given there until she gets to the last part where she says, well, there should be mental health professionals responding to things like addiction and, okay, uh, that's all well and good. I'm not opposed to that. But if you've got somebody strung out on heroin with a knife... I don't want a psychiatrist coming to my rescue. You know, it turned out that this was not something that was an emergency, but do you think Alyssa Milano would be okay with a social worker showing up to help her out there? I don't think so. And I'm not trying to punch in an argument that she didn't make. Maybe she was saying only in a situation where it's very clear there's no chance of violence. And if that's true, that's not necessarily a horrible thing to put out there. I don't really have a problem with police officers being the first line of defense that then arrests them and takes them to somebody that can help them. I think that that would be a much more controlled environment. And so I don't really have a problem with that stance either. But the thing is, the reason police officers are the first line of defense is because it is somebody that is violent. Because if you knew of someone that was having mental health issues, that was perhaps suicidal, that was having some problems uh, with, with drugs or whatever, you wouldn't call a police officer. But if you've got somebody that is having a problem with drugs and is trying to kill you, you do call a police officer. They try to make it out like police officers are responsible for doing all these things that they really should not be doing. I don't have a problem with police officers handling situations where a person even might be in danger, even if it's not clear at the very moment that they are in danger. That's what they're there for. Just like in this situation where there was no real danger, but they weren't sure about that at the time, therefore they called police officers. Alyssa Milano, her 
rationale doesn't make any sense when you apply it to the situation that she just went through. And yet she doesn't see the double standard here. Also, when she tries to say in that statement that, oh, these, are, these police officers handled it very well, this is the things that we need police to be doing, that's very different than the song that she was singing just a few months ago back on June 11th, you can see this tweet here where she says, black activists, organizers, and advocates who have been fighting for abolition, not scaling back, not taking away some funding, but leaving some, abolition, aren't asking for your permission or thoughts on their movement. Let's stop trying to whitesplain, hashtag defund the police. Now, last I checked, Alyssa Milano is white, so any explanation she is giving would be white-splaining, I assume. See, I don't think explanations actually have a race. Arguments are arguments. They don't have a racial connotation with them. But regardless, ignoring that slight oversight in logic there, she was saying, abolish the police. No more police officers. Defund the police completely. You see, Alyssa Milano doesn't mind changing her mind and completely doing a 180 on the principles that she used to hold as long as it benefits her in the moment. That's why she can say, believe all women in being a founding member of the Me Too movement, well, until the second that somebody's accusing Joe Biden of doing something that he shouldn't have, and then you don't believe the women. Then you just believe whatever Joe Biden says. Because, you know, you want to vote for the guy and you've known him for a long time. And so then you don't believe the women in that situation. You believe women until you don't believe women. And it's the same thing here. You defund the police until all of a sudden you need the police and it's convenient for you to have police. Therefore, it's okay to want police. You see, this sort of illustrates an underlying principle in the minds of leftists anyway. First of all, on the surface level, it demonstrates that my feelings, not facts or logic, actually dictate my behavior. So whatever I'm feeling in the moment, if I'm feeling like we should defund the police, if I'm feeling like I, I want to show solidarity with people that I agree with in, in the Black Lives Matter movement, then my feelings dictate that I say, yeah, get rid of the police completely, abolish them, defund them. But then all of a sudden when I'm feeling scared and would really like a police officer to show up, then all of a sudden it's okay for me to reach out to them and have them protect me. See, the thing is, Alyssa Milano just wants her family to be safe, which is normal and rational, and that's what all of us want too. Nobody's begrudging you for wanting your kids and your, your husband and yourself to feel safe and to have police to help you do that. We all want that too. That's why defunding the police is dangerous. That's the point that we're making. Nobody is upset with you for calling the police officers to help you feel safe. We're just saying that we want that too, which is why we don't want them defunded. Which is why what you're saying is inconsistent. And then it shows the larger and more important underlying problem with her ideology as well. Which is communism, or socialism, whichever one you'd rather use, is for the people, the masses, the peons, living out there in the heartland. It's not for me. You see... Communism isn't for the communists, it's for the people. Joseph Stalin did not live like a communist. He had drab clothing, but he ate immaculately, he never missed a meal. Uh, when you've got Maduro down there in Venezuela, he's down there snacking on empanadas while his people are killing dogs and zoo animals just to have enough meat to survive. 
communism is for the people, not the socialists. And so when they say, we want to defund the police, they go, well, yeah, but not in our gated communities. And when they say, we want Medicare for all, but we still want the private health care and, and the really good doctors. And so we're not waiting around six months to be able to, to get our, you know, to get our, our cancer screenings and uh, all of that stuff. We, you know, that's for you people over there. And so that's the bigger problem with what Alyssa Milano is saying here. She is, at the very least, consistently inconsistent in everything that she believes. Because she has no principles, she just has feelings. Another big story, which I thought was absolutely absurd, a nine-year-old boy in Louisiana has now been suspended from school for having a BB gun in his room. Not at school. Not any, even anywhere near school. They were doing a distance learning thing, and it just happened, and he wasn't like brandishing it. He wasn't threatening anybody with it. What happened is he was there at his virtual classroom on a webcam with his computer, and his brother comes behind him, and the gun is in his way. So what the boy does is he picks up the gun, and then they can see it on camera. It's been there the whole time. It's been in the room. It just so happened that he picked it up to where it could be seen by the camera. It's amazing that the camera didn't, uh, the, the BB gun, which is not an actual gun, didn't kill any of the students despite the fact that they were miles apart from each other in their own homes. It's a miracle that no one was hurt because this was such a dangerous situation. So anyway, he picks up the gun and he sets it next to a chair and then his teachers threw a fit and, and all of this. And it's in his room though. And they tried to cite a policy that you're not allowed to have a, a gun anywhere on the school bus or on the school grounds. But the house isn't their grounds. It's their house. Just because you happen to be teaching a kid that is sitting in his bedroom does not make that bedroom your property. Nor does it mean that your policies can't apply to what goes on in that bedroom. That's not how this works. And so they just fly off the handle about it, wound up suspending the kid. And he wasn't even displaying it intentionally. It, was just, it just happened to be in his brother's way and he had to move it. And that's why it happened to be in the camera. It's not even like he was brandishing it or something. And now he has been assigned, a, I'm not making this up, I swear. He has been assigned a social worker because of all this. And this is going on his record because he's suspended now. So they have to put it on his record that he is suspended. And the reason that he is suspended is for having a gun on school grounds, even though it wasn't a gun and it wasn't on school grounds. We have gone bat crap crazy. This is a level of stupid I have not seen in a while, and I do a daily dose of stupid on, well, not a daily basis anymore since we moved to just two days a week, but all of this is happening, and then afterwards, they had all the students write a letter about it. You ever seen a kid that believes that he's sick all the time and that every little thing is a huge deal, and you can't understand why the kid is like that? Until you meet their parents and realize that their parents are like that and they indulge the kids so every little thing that happens that is wrong they think is some kind of serious ordeal that is life-threatening to them. That the parent is a hypochondriac so they make the kids into a hypochondriac. That's what's going on here. Part of the reason that guns are viewed the way that they are by society is because you have teachers like this that flip out at the mere sight of a thing that they think is a gun. That they are so averse to it that they freak out at the slightest... I mean, you can say the word gun and they'll, like, duck and cover. 
And because of that, and because they treat this as some kind of giant traumatic event that all these kids should be traumatized over, and they, they make them write letters and give them counseling and all this stuff, th because they make it a big deal, the kids believe it's a big deal, even though they initially did it. The kid, you know, could be like, well, it's, you know, just a BB gun, not a big deal. But they try to convince the kid that it's a bigger deal than it is, and so the kid plays into that because that's what he's being told by the adults in the room. And so this whole thing is absurd, but ultimately the goal of it is to teach kids to be afraid of guns, anybody with any kind of gun, even if the gun isn't dangerous or they're not in danger. You see, that's kind of underlying the whole gun control debate in America anyway. It's not that most of the people that support gun control are in danger of being shot by anybody or that they are in danger of, of having, they don't see guns on a regular basis, they're not threatened by guns or anything. It's merely the phantom idea that there is a person out there that has a gun that might potentially hurt them, even though they're a good person and would never hurt anybody. That alone is enough to make them afraid, and they're trying to teach these kids to do the same. The, the mere idea that a person has a gun should scare them. And that's what they're trying to do here. And finally, the sixth news story in our marathon, Daily Dose of Stupid, Trump will not peaceably transfer power. That's the, the most recent narrative that is coming out of the blogosphere and uh, the mainstream media. So this is the clip that they are saying where it proves that Trump has no intention of giving up the election and, and giving up the presidency, even if he winds up losing the election in November. Win, lose, or draw in this election, will you commit here today for a peaceful transferal of power after the election? And there has been rioting in Louisville, there's been rioting in many cities across this country, red and your so-called red and blue states. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transferal of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I and, understand that, but and, people are rioting. Do you commit oh, no, to making sure that there's a no, peaceful transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, the ballots are out of control. You know it. And you know who knows it better than anybody else? The Democrats know it better than anybody else. Go ahead. Now, here's the thing. Trump's not the most eloquent speaker. He's not precise with his words. He tends to speak in word salads. We all know this. We know this because he's been doing this since 2015. Actually, he's been doing it for decades before that, but we've been paying attention, at least, if you're in the political sphere and didn't really watch a whole lot of non-political TV like I did before all of this is taking place. Since President Trump has been in the political sphere, these media types should have learned that President Trump is not going to give you a precise one-word answer that you're asking for, like most politicians will at least try to do on some, some occasions. See, normally, if you had a politician that is very polished and trained in this kind of stuff, and he doesn't give you that clear, concise, one-word answer of that, they take that to mean that he's dodging the question. And normally, they would be right. But the reason that I don't think this is happening with Trump is, is twofold. First of all, he actually hints at, he just never actually completes the sentence, that he actually is going to do a peaceful transfer of power if he winds up losing the election. He says there, again, doesn't complete the sentence because he speaks in word salads, but he says, you're going to see a very, you get rid of the ballots and you're going to see a very peaceful transfer. 
And then he just stops and goes off on a tangent about you're not going to see a transfer. You're going to see a Trump victory, giant neon Trump 2020. I'm going to be your president. You know, elaborating a little bit. But he goes off on that because he wants to convey the message that he's going to win the presidency, which is a very Trumpian thing to do. But he was saying it's conditional. And this is the second part of this. He wasn't saying that there will be no peaceful transfer of power. He's saying it looks like this thing is going to be rigged. And because of that, you will see a peaceful transfer of power. If it's done fairly, you're not going to see it if it's not. He's putting a condition on his answer. And the truth of the matter is and it's probably going to wind up being the opposite because of the, the mail-in ballots, you would actually see, potentially, if the Democrats get away with this, that what you would see is, initially, it would look like Trump won on election night, and then you would see votes starting to trickle in afterward. All President Trump is saying, hey, if it's done fair, then yeah. But you're not going to see that because I'm going to win, and you're not going to see that because there's a whole bunch of Democrats trying to steal the election. Now, whether or not you buy into that narrative or not is kind of immaterial. The point is Trump believes it and is operating off of that. That's not him saying that if I lose the election, I'm going to try to hold on to power. That's just him saying he's trying to illustrate a talking point that he'd rather talk about rather than the question that he was asked. And... The thing is, Trump, by his very nature, is very reactionary. And what he's reacting to is not the question itself. He's reacting to the subtext going on here. Because he knows that the reason that this journalist is asking the question. And I would rather the president take things denotative instead of connotative, quite frankly. I would rather a president that responds to the question itself, not the person asking it or the reason that they're asking it. But... We all know that the reason this journalist is asking this question is because there are a whole bunch of people that are saying Trump is literally Hitler and he'll hold on to his power no matter what. Even if he loses the election, he's going to try to stay in office. That's the reason that this question is being asked in the first place. What's hilarious, though, is despite the fact that you have the former Democrat presidential candidate Hillary Clinton saying that Joe Biden should not concede under any circumstances, and by the way, still hasn't conceded <laughs> From her, from the last, she's still going around telling people that she won that election, but uh, still hasn't conceded for, from four years ago when she lost. She is going around telling people that Joe Biden should not uh, should not accept the results of the election, and then you have Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, who is sort of the leader of the party right now. She is going out and saying that Joe Biden shouldn't accept the results of the election. You notice that nobody is going up to Joe Biden. No reporters are going to Joe Biden and asking, so uh, if it turns out you lose, are you going to accept the results of that? Nobody's asking that question to Joe Biden. Joe Biden is currently, this isn't just theoretical either. Joe Biden is currently hiring several attorneys, actually a couple hundred around the country, just in case he winds up losing the election to look at the results. That's not inherently a bad thing. I mean, if I were running for president, I would want to make sure that the election was done fair as well. But word around the water cooler in Washington is what he is doing that what he is doing that for is specifically to be able to challenge the results if he winds up losing. And yet nobody is asking Joe Biden, "Hey, are you going to adhere to the results of the election? Are you going to concede 
if it turns out President Trump winds up beating you in the election? Nobody's asking that question because they have no interest in doing so. That's the problem with the media. And, you know, this whole thing is, is pretty rich, but unfortunately it's what we've come to expect from the media. There's a completely different set of standards for one politician than it is for a politician that they actually like or that they want to win an election. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Chaplain's Report, we will be continuing the series that we've been doing in 1 Samuel. And this is it. This is what we've been building to these many weeks where we're talking about Goliath. This is the big battle which takes place in 1 Samuel 17 verses 48 through 49 where it says, Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. So, first of all, this is history's first critical hit. So, if you're an RPG gamer like me, you know what that means. It's just having to hit in the right spot and then the giant comes tumbling down. So... You know, David's courage that we've been talking about going into battle with nothing but a slingshot, not needing armor, not needing a sword, relying on God as the one that is going to thrust him to victory in this battle wound up working out quite well for him. And I think it's important to note, all David needed was a rock. That's it. God has a habit of doing the extraordinary with the ordinary. Think about this. At the time of the Exodus, Egypt was the most powerful country on planet Earth. It would have been like Rome at the height of the Roman Empire, or the British Empire in the 15 and 1600s, or America is today. This is the most powerful country on Earth. God took it down with one dude and a stick. Literally a stick. And now... When Israel is faced with this overwhelming threat of the Philistines and this little, little tiny nation of God's people is confronted with a nine-foot giant, God sends a teenage boy and a rock. That's God's plan. And what's even more astounding is it actually works because God is God. And that was the point of this whole thing anyway. If you get anything else out of this, if you get any other message out of this lesson, you're doing it wrong. The whole thrust of this, this message, and there are other lessons you can learn from it, but ultimately all of those lessons ought to go back to, at some point, God is God. God is God. He can accomplish the impossible. He is limitless. He is omnipotent. Everything. He is the Almighty because He can take a 15-year-old with a slingshot, a little bit of leather, and a rock and take down a nine-foot giant warrior. Because that's who he is. He does the extraordinary with the ordinary. 
One of the things that we learn about Jesus Christ is that the only description we have of what he looked like is that he was not particularly attractive. We know from the epistles that Jesus was not somebody that had wealth or status or anything. The only thing he had going for him is that God was on his side. And that's all David had on his side. And you know what? That's all they needed. They didn't need anything else. If David had gone into battle completely unarmed, God would have found a way for him to prevail then too. God could have struck Goliath down at any time. He didn't even need a person to go in. And so that's what's being illustrated here is that God does the, he, he makes that which is impossible any other way possible. He is the X factor that takes things that otherwise could not be done and gets them done. And another message I think that it sends is that look at the weapon of choice here. Swords are crafted by men. It takes time, it takes hours, it takes years of experience. A seasoned swordsmith has learned from literally centuries of experience from people that have passed that knowledge down to make a good sword. So this is something that takes an incredible amount of effort on the human side of it. God used a rock to beat a guy with a big sword and a big spear and a big shield and a whole bunch of armor that a lot of people spend a lot of time making. See, rocks are made by God, not like swords. And yet somehow this sword, this thing that God made, triumphs over this thing that humans labored and worked over. And I like swords. I'm a swordsman. I collect them. I know how to use them. It's all something that interests me. But ultimately, I understand that that which is made by God is better. Now, obviously, if I get a choice of, of going into battle with a sword or a rock, I'm going to pick a sword. But the message that is being sent here is, if God makes it, it is adequate. You see, sometimes human beings fight and toil and work and slave, and they will create something that is very good, but it is still not the same as something that God made. I mean, look at artificial intelligence. We have been working nonstop for years trying to reach artificial intelligence, and we're probably not that far off. We may get there in a decade or two, maybe even sooner, who knows? It's still something that we're trying to copy from God. Because of my job, I'm really into cameras. And it's so great that we have high-tech cameras that are relatively cheap now that you can watch something in, in 1080, uh, full high-def, that we have these high-def cameras that even normal people can afford. They're still not as good as the human eye. Think about it. The human eye, granted, it'll, it'll gain some wear and tear over the years, and it'll, you know, you may need a doctor to help keep it sustained, but do you know of any other camera that sees in perfect HD, you know, for 80 years and is self-cleaning? It comes with its own lens cover. I mean, everything that human beings make is just trying to imitate something that God already did. God's creations are better. And that's one thing that is being put on display here as well. It's a tangential thing, but I think it's also important We'll see the results of this battle as well in 1 Samuel 17, verses 50 through 51. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. 
Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off the head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. You know how embarrassing it is to get killed with your own sword? I just mentioned that I've studied sword play a little bit. I'm, you know, not an expert or anything like that. And if I had somebody that really knew what they were doing, I'd probably get myself killed. But the point is, I've studied it a little bit. Believe me when I tell you, the most shameful thing that can happen to you as a swordsman is to die by your own blade. Because that means either you were so unskilled that somebody was able to remove your sword from you, take it away from you, or to position their own sword in such a way that they made your own blade hurt you. Which is more of a testament to your incompetence than their skill. And so, because of that, Goliath not only dies, but he dies in basically the most embarrassing way possible. First, he gets knocked out by a, you know, a little kid with a slingshot. And then after that humiliation, the way that he actually dies is that same kid goes and picks up his sword and cuts his head off with it. This is by far the most embarrassing way that a warrior, somebody who prides himself as being skilled with a sword, can possibly die. And by the way, this is not only applies to swords and doesn't only apply to Goliath. We see this happen in other places in the scripture as well. Think about, for example, the hanging gallows. If you know anything about the story of Haman, he had a gigantic 50-foot-tall gallow built for Mordecai because he wanted to kill God's people. And spoiler alert for a story that's now several thousand years old, what winds up happening to Haman is that Esther, the queen, turns against him, and he winds up hanging on the gallows that he himself made. He made the gallows for his enemies, and what wound up happening is he got hung on his own gallows. This happens in Egypt, too. The pride of Egypt was the Nile. And what's the first thing God does when he sends Moses to free his people? Turns it into blood and makes it useless. In fact, makes it worse than useless. He actually makes it a blight on the land. Because it stinks, and then eventually the frogs come up out of it, and that becomes another plague. Then you've got, you know, mice, or mice, lice, lice and flies flying around. The thing that was their saving grace, the pride of Egypt, the Nile River, became the source of their demise. And there's other Bible stories I could allude to, but you get the idea. God uses people's own sword against them, when they're wicked and refuse to do what he asked them to, over and over again, because it's an embarrassing way for them to meet their end, and it also shows his own superiority. He's saying, I am God, and all of the stuff that you're using, all of the stuff that's benefiting you, eventually I made it. Like, even the sword, even though I'm sure it was crafted by some kind of Philistine blacksmith, well, God made the metal. God created iron and carbon and all the other things that you need to make a sword. And so eventually, no matter how good the craftsmanship is, God's responsible for it at some point. And when you try to use the things that God has blessed you with to hurt other people, normally what he does is he turns that blessing around on you. And that's what we're seeing here in this particular passage. One other point that I wanted to make as well is that, why did the Philistines all run away when one guy got killed? They still have the advantage. They still have a great big army. Why are they so scared of this? 
because the Philistines put their trust in their weapons and armor just like Goliath did. Goliath's trust was not in God. It was in his size, his muscle, and his armor and his weapons. But just like David has just illustrated in the verse that we looked at last week, or Tuesday, his faith was in the living God. All the Philistines' faith was in these material things that they could see, and the second that that protection, that illusion of protection goes away and they see their champion, who had the best armor and the best weapons, get taken out by one little kid with a rock, all of a sudden they understand, oh man, that trust that we had put in all of that stuff is not real reliable. They probably wouldn't have articulated it that way, but that's what their instincts are telling them, and they're right. They put their faith in the wrong thing, and now they realize it. Even though they probably don't understand all the implications of it or wouldn't be able to explain why that is, their brains are telling them, you are not safe. And the reason you are not safe is because you put your faith in all these things that clearly didn't protect this guy. And so they justifiably now understand that David, with God at his side, is much scarier than a whole bunch of big guys with armor and swords. And finally, let's look at this last little passage on this battle. 1 Samuel 17, 52-54. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Shariam, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem but he put, his, uh, he put his weapons in his tent. So I do think it's actually pretty cool that David winds up taking Goliath's sword, and that actually comes into play later in a different story where he uses Goliath's sword again. But the thing that is so astounding about this is this isn't just a victory. The Bible is very clear to point out this is a total victory to the point that they're not only losing the battle, they even lose their camps. They're being driven back so far and so fast that all their stuff is left behind. The enemy camp is behind them, open for Israel to plunder. And so they do. God has such a convincing, overwhelming victory, and it's all thanks to David. I mean, obviously, you go back further, it's all thanks to God, obviously. But God only needed to have one very brave person to stand up and say, I will stand up for what I believe in. I will stand up to defend God's name. And the second that he did, overwhelming victory. To the point to where the Philistines are terrified and the Israelites are emboldened. You see... If this thing had happened without David, maybe even if the Philistines weren't afraid, the Israelites had become emboldened enough that they would have won the battle anyway. That's a possibility. I don't know that for sure, because it's a what-if situation. But the thing is, it took one person to encourage everybody else. Only one. So when God's people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, when you look around and you see God's people are afraid or they're engaged in things they should not be engaged in, or they're just not acting the way that God would want them to act, and you're like, this is terrible. Keep in mind that God only needs one person to fix that. You can be that person. Will it be scary and uncomfortable? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's going to be. 
And that's what happened with David. He had to face somebody that he, on paper, had no chance against. And yet that very same boldness is why we honor him even to this day, thousands of years after he's been dead. It's because he had the faith that inspired the people around him. God only needed one person to be bold and to step forward and say, even if nobody else is going to do it, I will stand for God. I will do what is right. And it led to an overwhelming victory and a whole bunch of people doing what God wanted them to do from the very beginning. It only takes one. Be that kind of person. Be like David and face the giants, and it will cause a victory. Maybe not an immediate victory, maybe not even a victory by the world's definition, but a victory nonetheless. Be the person that is willing to stand up for what God wants you to do. Other people are going to take notice, and most of the time, you're going to have some people follow as well. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.